Hello there, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, comrades and friends. What you're about to listen to is part two of the Great Hollywood Cover-Up, the first two-parter in the canon of History Impossible. Uh, I want to just get right to this next episode because you waited long enough for it when I promised it a couple weeks and it's been close to a month since I released the first part, but kind of grew unwieldy. We'll just say that. You'll see, you will see. You probably are not surprised when you see the length of this one. But uh, let me just give a quick shout out to the donors, the, the kind and generous folks over on my PayPal donation page. Peter Hauk, regular donor. He's joined by a new donor. I'm hoping I'm getting your name right, man. James Goki. I hope so. Thank you very much for the donation. Very much appreciated. If you other fine listeners want to contribute to the podcast, you can head over to HistoryImpossible.com and hit the donate button at the bottom of the page. Otherwise, you can uh, be those holdouts for the Patreon that's supposedly coming every time I start a new episode I mention. Anyway, uh, in addition to this, like I also promised at the beginning of the last episode and the little intro I gave, there is going to be in a sense, a sort of third History Impossible episode coming out in the very near future. By that, I mean the collaboration that I am doing with the always awesome, always talented, one of the podcast greats, Daniele Bellelli, on our joint episode on Lady Death. That episode should be dropping on the History on Fire feed on Luminary. Probably by the time you hear this episode, it will have dropped. If not, it will be dropping this coming weekend as of this recording, the end of July. Now, finally, I also want to thank, as always, Molly Pan, the phenomenal Molly Pan, who is actually the one responsible for creating those beautiful episode logos that we've seen for these last two ones. I'm hoping to continue that tradition with the following episodes we have coming. Uh, We will see. And yes, I'm aware there was not a pop quiz between this episode and the last one, but I'm going to make things harder for her with the next pop quiz and have her try to remember the full two-part story of who killed William Desmond Taylor in the great Hollywood cover-up. Um, I might just be talking most of the time during that time because I don't know how much she'll remember because as I'm sure you fine people who are listening probably can tell, this one has a lot. It's it's a lot. So, uh, yeah, why don't we get right back into it? Let's get into some impossible history. Permit me to tell you what you would have seen and heard. It will not be pleasant listening. If you're at lunch or if you have no appetite, now is a good time to switch off the radio. ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. The European Russian found the outrot of the Judenos in Europa. One who knows that another world will utterly destroy the seven thousand years. I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is in sight. I don't see any American dream, I see an American nightmare. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold to those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. This is History Impossible. 
The first test of Hollywood's character in years would happen on January 7th, 2018. It was the 75th Golden Globes, typically a low-key affair that it really only serves to provide decent to perplexing, I should say, predictions on who or what will take home the big prize of Best Picture at the Oscars, usually held about two months later. But in January 2018, this time, it was different. This was the first time since the revelations about not just Harvey Weinstein, but an increasing number of famous stars and figures in show business that everyone in the Hollywood community would be gathered together with these live television cameras, all in high-def glory, being pointed right in their faces. The question on everyone's mind that had been watching the scandals unfold was actually quite simple. How were these people going to react to the spotlight now that it felt like the figurative emperor no longer had any clothes on? As it turned out, the main reaction would actually be one of clothing and accessories, in that many of the female actors nominated, presenting, or simply attending would be wearing black dresses, as well as rectangular black and white pins available online at $8 a pop, sporting the key phrase of the night, Time's Up. Several actors arrived on the red carpet accompanied by various activists in a, an effort to show solidarity with the women who came forward to shine a light on the moral rot that had been in Hollywood under the tyranny of the patriarchy. Indeed, one of the founders of this ancillary hashtag to the MeToo hashtag, the famous Ava Longoria, would say, quote, This is a moment of solidarity, not a fashion moment, unquote. As if to anticipate any criticism that was bound to come this new ancillary movement's way. She would confidently continue, quote, For years we've sold these award shows as women, with our gowns and colors and our beautiful faces and our glamour. This time, the industry can't expect us to go up and twirl around. That's not what this moment is about, unquote. There were more impassioned statements and interviews and speeches given, all culminating in actor Selma Hayek's triumphant use of the hashtag itself, sort of waving her hands like a conductor in unison with the words, when she took the podium being met with rapturous applause by all of the other high-profile celebrities in attendance. The message sent by the speeches, the applause, the smiling-slash-nodding heads of these other actors in the audience was being made crystal clear across the country on this live broadcast. Things were going to change in Hollywood. And while there certainly were detractors of the moment that Ava Longoria spoke of, as there always are in the age of live blocking and retweeting, much of the press actually seemed quite taken with the uh, efforts being made. As Vanity Fair put it in their coverage of the 2018 Golden Globes, quote, The continuing sexual harassment allegations against some of Hollywood's most powerful men, some of whom, like Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Tambor, had prominent seats at last year's Golden Globes, have upended the film and television industry, with women feeling empowered for the first time to speak up about harassment that, in some cases, happened decades in the past. As the Time's Up effort acknowledges, though, the reckoning in Hollywood is only the beginning, unquote. And I'll be fair, while it may be too soon to judge whether or not the efforts of these hashtag campaigns being trumpeted by the stars of 2018 at their award shows have been successful, the speculation that these scandals would negatively affect the film industry, it seems to have been short-sighted. The films produced by Marvel Studios continue into 2019 and probably 2020 to break all possible records. Film attendance hasn't shrunk in general any faster than it already was shrinking on its own when the Weinstein scandal hit the press. 
One could speculate that the reason for this is because it quickly became clear that things were not as morally black and white as the quote-unquote victimized actresses and quote-unquote slovenly producers uh, and a nasty faux-leather casting couch, especially after allegations of things like statutory rape are made against Asia Argento, one of the foremost voices in this new movement to quash sexual misconduct in Hollywood, uh, when those concluded in denunciations from nearly every side of the argument and produced a sort of unfortunate chilling effect on the whole thing. However, this is unlikely. The lack of effect on box office receipts began long before the picture had been grain. The showcase to show that time was indeed up for these perverts began less than three months after the original story. The Time's Up organization had launched a week before the awards on January 1st, 2018. This meant that there had already been a plan in place for some time. It's fair to say that the men and women most concerned with those box office receipts had gone into damage control as soon as, or let's be fair, not even before, thanks to leaks, but at least as soon as the original New York Times story had flown off the presses and into the hands of Americans, into the hands of their audiences, more specifically. Remember how I said last time that the more things change, the more they stay the same? On September 26th, 1920, an assembly of stars and starlets gathered at the Brunton studio on Melrose Avenue here in Los Angeles. It was a memorial service for their fallen comrades, including the most recent scandalous death of Olive Thomas in her Paris hotel room, uh, which I covered in part one of the great Hollywood cover-up. William J. Mann, in his book Tinseltown, described the proceedings as follows, quote, They came together this afternoon to memorialize their dead. On the Long Acre stage, the largest of the studio's film sets, 800 mourners, stars, and stagehands, producers, and supers, were filing solemnly into the pews that had been hastily arranged by Brunton property men. With all eyes on him, William Desmond Taylor stepped up to the podium to speak. Sitting in the audience that day were some of the most important people in the film colony, Adolf Zukor's partner, Jesse Lasky, Zukor's rival, Thomas Ince, Zukor's chief director, Cecil B. DeMille, such top stars as Betty Compson, Harold Lloyd, Mae Marsh, Richard Dix, Thomas Meehan, Lila Lee, Charles Ray, Will Rogers, B.B. Daniels, and the biggest names of all sitting front row and center, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks. The whole world was watching them. Everyone in the audience was well aware of that fact. They were all depending on William Desmond Taylor to say what needed to be said, unquote. That was the man who had stepped up to the podium to deliver the speech to end all speeches, or rather, the speech to end all controversies, by invoking the memories of those dearly departed stars in the most heartfelt way possible, by reciting the names of the departed actors with Chopin's funeral march acting as the soundtrack. Quote, Sweet little Carolyn Seymour, radiant with youth, gallant, fearless Omer Locklear, true-hearted Bobby Heron, generous, great-hearted Ali Thomas, unquote. After listing their names and the adjectives, of course, that the industry wanted associated with them, he delivered a eulogy that only referred to the dead in glowing terms while making sure to avoid speaking of the scandal while invoking things like honor and the importance of family. The Los Angeles Examiner reported on the proceedings, noting how many of the stars in the attendance couldn't help themselves but be moved to tears, nodding along with Taylor's words in the only way an actor at an award show or public event can. Quote, William Taylor's beautiful tribute to the memories of the recently departed stars tried even the stoutest hearts and will never be forgotten by the motion picture folk who made the unique pilgrimage of sorrow to the studio. Unquote. 
Another person in attendance to the event would comment on Taylor's speech that, quote, His sympathy was a thing of beauty. In it, with the utmost delicacy, he touched the tragic notes and the violent passings of youths who had all life and accomplishments before them. While from his stock of his supreme tenderness, he pointed his moral soul, revealing with the philosophy of a thoughtful and clear vision, the light in all things, unquote. His eulogy eventually ended with hardly a dry eye in the house, if accounts are to be believed. As William Desmond Taylor closed his speech, the room did what only a room in Hollywood would do after someone delivered a eulogy. It erupted in stream after stream of applause. And now, flash forward to nearly two years later, in February of 1922, this man, the man who brought catharsis and much-needed positive PR to the film industry after this spate of unexpected death and scandal, was lying dead on the floor of his two-story bungalow in Alvarado Court, his valet screaming his lungs out for anyone who could help. Why was this man suddenly dead? And perhaps more importantly, at least at the time, who had been the one that killed him? bullet that had killed William Desmond Taylor had entered about six and a half inches below Taylor's left armpit, passing through the seventh interspace of the ribs, and after ripping through his left lung, found its way upward into his neck, right below the right collarbone, where it remained lodged four and a half inches below the surface of the skin. This was the only concrete, non-circumstantial evidence about the actual murder of William Desmond Taylor, as reported by the coroner, Dr. A.F. Wagner. But this wouldn't be discovered right away. After Henry Peavy began screaming for help, a crowd began to gather outside and inside Taylor's home, almost without missing a beat. This crowd included some of Taylor's famous neighbors, including both Faith and Douglas McLean and Edna Proviance. Proviance's own two-story bungalow was next to Taylor's own, and the McLean's own bungalow duplex was perpendicular to Taylor's own front door, with a garage wedged snugly between them and opening up into the back alley. As you might recall from our first episode, it was the McLeans, specifically their maid Christine, who had heard the sounds of someone shuffling around outside the house, specifically in that area where Taylor and the McLeans shared a garage. Faith McLean herself would remember it this way. It was around 7.45 the night before, and dinner had just finished. Faith had sat down and begun knitting. About ten minutes later, Douglas went upstairs to look for an electric heater to stave off the unseasonable cold weather that was hitting Los Angeles in early 1922. It was apparently about as low as 38 degrees, which, if you've lived in L.A. for as long as I have at this point, you know that that's not normal. <laughs> then at different parts of the house, Douglas, Faith, and their maid Christine all heard a loud bang. Christine was the one to suggest a gun, and Faith replied that it was probably just a car backfiring, as they were wont to do back then. But when Christine insisted it sounded more like a shot, Faith indulged her and went to the back door to look outside. Out in the cold air of the Los Angeles night, Faith looked over to Taylor's house, where the lights were on. A stranger seemed to just melt out of the shadows of the doorway. 
She would describe the stranger as, quote, dressed like my idea of a motion picture burglar, unquote, with a dark suit, a gray plaid cap, and either a scarf or a turned-up collar, making it hard to make out his face. She guessed the stranger's height is around 5'9", could be a little shorter, maybe about 170 pounds. She described the stranger's face as smooth-shaven, but also that the stranger had an overall rough-looking quality, maybe because of the clothes. When asked by the district attorney later if the figure seemed like they were in a hurry, Faith would say, quote, No, he was the coolest thing I have ever seen. He was facing Alvarado Street, and as I opened my door, I saw him. He turned around and looked at me and hesitated. Then it seemed to me that Mr. Taylor must have spoken to him from inside the house. It seemed like the stranger pulled the door shut. He turned around and, looking at me all the time, went down the couple of steps that go into Taylor's house. I thought it was just nothing, none of my business, unquote. What Faith didn't know was that whoever this stranger was, there was a smoking thirty-eight caliber pistol in their pocket, and one that had just put a bullet into Mr. Taylor's body. And Taylor, at that moment when Faith McLean saw his killer, was likely struggling to breathe his last breath as his left lung filled with blood while he lay on the carpet of his home. This memory was likely moving through Faith's mind as she, along with her husband, huddled in Taylor's bungalow, looking at his strangely serene-looking corpse as more and more people bustled around her. Her husband was solemn, recalling that Taylor's body, quote, looked just like a dummy in a department store window, so perfect and immaculate, unquote, adding that Taylor looked like, quote, a wax figure dressed up, unquote. But Doug McLean wasn't just solemn because he had seen a man with whom he was friendly dead in front of him. And that would be, you know, a reason to be solemn, I think it's safe to say. But Doug McLean was also solemn because he now knew that it wasn't a car backfiring that he'd heard the night before. And he didn't like what some of these characters who were now gathering in Taylor's home were saying, like that mysterious doctor who just showed up out of nowhere and claimed within seemingly no time at all that Taylor had clearly died from a stomach hemorrhage. Neither of the McLeans had ever heard of a stomach hemorrhage producing blood from the mouth like this, but they supposed anything was possible. At around 8 a.m., Detective Sergeant Thomas H. Ziegler showed up with another LAPD officer to take a look at this fast-growing scene. The bungalow was filled with Taylor's neighbors, but also with several people from the famous Players Lasky studio who were bustling around Taylor's home like they were just finishing up some kind of weird covert operation. But Ziegler didn't have time to wonder what the studio people were up to, or how they'd all managed to get there before he did, he just needed to clear all of these people out until he could determine whether or not this was a crime scene. He just needed to know what was going on. There was a dead man, that's all he knew. He herded everyone out of the way except for the neighbors from whom he took witness statements. Doug and Faith McLean, likely attempting to clear their consciences, kept insisting that they had heard what they thought was a shot the night before. However, the doctor Doug McLean had noticed earlier, a doctor that, again, no one seemed to know, but who claimed he was simply visiting a nearby patient and just happened to hear the commotion and decided to help. He also insisted to Ziegler that this wasn't a case of some foul play. Taylor had clearly died of a stomach hemorrhage. This seemed to fit since there was no evidence of burglary, Taylor still had on his gold wristwatch an amazing gold diamond ring and about 70-something-odd dollars in his desk in cash. So, almost as soon as Ziegler wrote down natural causes, the mysterious doctor slipped into the mingling crowd and was never seen again. Meanwhile, 
Taylor's other neighbor, Edna Perviance, knew that she had to make an unpleasant phone call, maybe one of the most unpleasant phone calls she'd ever have to make, now that reporters and police who were trickling into the small bungalow had caught wind of who had last seen Taylor alive. She had arrived home from a party much later the night before, at around midnight or so, and she had thought it was odd when she saw that Taylor's lights were on despite the hour. She'd considered ringing his bell, perhaps to check in on him or maybe even share a nightcap, but she would decide against it due to the late hour. Possibly feeling guilty about not checking in with Taylor, Edna picked up the phone and rang Mabel Normand, knowing that she was indeed the last person to see Taylor alive. Mabel didn't go into shock when she heard the news. She just started weeping. She was in the process of putting on makeup for her shoot of her comeback film, Susanna, the film that she and Taylor had just talked about the night before. But now, as she wept, thinking about her slain friend, reporters and police had just started mobbing her house. As she would recount later to an interviewer, quote, There was a ringing at my doorbell and a clamor outside. The wildest mob I ever saw tumbled into my living room. Detectives and reporters and press photographers and curious strangers... They hurled a million questions. Then it dawned on me that it might be on the minds of some of them that I had murdered my friend. That ghastly possibility made me frantic, unquote. Given her nearly, at this point, decade-long experience dealing with the yellow journalists of early 20th century America, Mabel could be mistaken for someone with the gift of uh, prestidigitation, especially since the papers owned by William Randolph Hearst would be pushing headlines like, Find the Woman! within 48 hours of the slaying, not any evidence, really, that a woman was involved. While Mabel didn't know the inner workings of these institutions, she knew how to recognize a juicy headline from a mile away. And since she'd been reading the Police Gazette lately, a magazine known for covering murders in sensationalist fashion, she also knew that true crime that involved female killers, angels of death, black widows, and so on, made for good headlines, really good copy. After all, the most profitable issues of Hearst Papers in the last few years had indeed involved female killers. Think about how much more copy could be sold if the newest Black Widow was a starlet, and one of the biggest starlets at that. Because while there was literally no evidence, not even evidence of foul play yet, the press were chomping at the bit to find a sexy, scandalous story involving a famous player who might well be a murderer. After all, they were still on the subscription Cloud 9 that they found after the Fatty Arbuckle scandal hit, uh, which was still in the process of unfolding in the courts, believe it or not. So Mabel understood this was the reality in which she now lived, whether she liked it or not. And while the press could be a nuisance, she had to play ball, especially when there were cops among them hoping to talk to her. Back in Alvarado Court, Detective Ziegler was now acting less like a professional crime scene investigator and frankly more like a sycophantic assistant waiting to give his producer boss his morning coffee. But the proverbial producer was actually even more important than that. Famous Players Lasky's general studio manager, Jesse Lasky, and Adolf Zukor's number two man, Charles Ayton. Ayton was a New Zealander and a lightweight wrestler who had come to the United States in 1889 to go pro and competed until around 1914 while also acting as a theater manager in Burbank, giving him the experience that put him on the radar of Jesse Lasky, who eventually made him the general manager of Famous Players. But it wasn't just experience that allowed Lasky, and by extension Zucor, to trust this Kiwi bruiser. It was his ability to command a room with an innate sense of authority. As William Mann writes in Tinseltown, quote, He knew that a successful resolution to a crisis depended on taking control right from the start, unquote. 
This, along with simple police incompetence, is arguably why Aiton was able to get away with what he did while he was in William Desmond Taylor's home the morning after the murder. Because Aiton had actually been hard at work in Taylor's bungalow for a good half hour before Ziegler and the police had even arrived. He had been tipped off by the brother of Taylor's chauffeur, Howard Fellows, who had called his brother, Harry, who worked as an assistant director at Famous Players Lasky, and who in turn immediately told Aiton, who also immediately rushed to Taylor's bungalow within minutes, but he wasn't alone. He was there with other employees of Famous Players Lasky, including the scenarist Julia Crawford Ivers, Taylor's chauffeur Howard Fellows, who I mentioned a moment ago, and set and costume designer George Hopkins, who will play into our story later. Earlier that morning, before Ziegler and the other police arrived, Aiton had pulled these famous players' employees into a powwow and told them that they all had to play ball and do as he say. And what he said was this, take everything. And by everything, he meant anything written down. Letters, diaries, financial statements, production schedules, stray notes. It didn't matter. If post-it notes existed back then, which they didn't, he would have said, take those too. If it was written by or for Taylor, it had to go before the cops, and more importantly, the press were able to get their grubby little mitts on it. Hopkins would leave the house with a wire wastebasket full of documents while Ivers would use her hat pin, no joke, to pry open Taylor's locked mailbox and take whatever was in there. As Fellows would later recall, quote, We got all the literature and things like that and put them in a package, unquote. And if by package... He meant a safe back at the famous player's Lasky lot for later examination away from the prying eyes of the authorities and the press, then he would be right on the money, because that's exactly where the masses of documents would go. This wouldn't stop the press from later speculating things like eight and burning papers in Taylor's fireplace, but the problem with that rumor is that, it, well, Taylor didn't have a fireplace. There was no fireplaces in Alvarado Court, so there's that. And while they didn't necessarily know any of this, I feel that it's important to point out that you don't have to lie or embellish to make this whole situation a little more than sketchy in case you weren't already screaming at your computer or phone hearing me talk about a cover-up happening. Without question, this was to save face and control the narrative of a crime scene. So take that for what it's worth. Aiton himself would later say when confronted about this after it was leaked to the press, quote, I simply wanted to protect innocent parties, including Taylor, from scandal, unquote. And there's that word again, scandal. That also probably explains why Aiton, not likely a totally stupid man, probably not a stupid man at all, almost immediately accepted the quote-unquote stomach hemorrhage diagnosis from the mystery doctor who indeed seemed to have completely evaporated straight through the walls. Any questions of the natural causes diagnosis meant unnatural causes, and let's be real— most unnatural causes, especially in Hollywood in the early 1920s, probably involve a scandal of some kind. So, Aiton was just praying, really, hoping against hope that this was the case. But this wasn't going to get waved away by a mysterious man claiming to be a medical professional since the LAPD's deputy coroner, a William McDonald, arrived at around 8.40 a.m. to make his formal diagnosis. It was when he arrived and started examining Taylor's body that Aiton knew something was wrong, and his hope that this wasn't going to be another scandal for the studio, and for Hollywood itself, probably, it just completely evaporated as McDonald withdrew his hand from under Taylor's coat with it covered in Taylor's blood. Last I checked, you're not going to find blood 
on someone's torso when they die of a stomach hemorrhage, or when there's a small hole on their back caused by a bullet now lodged in their neck. And that's exactly what was discovered when Aiton McDonald turned the body over and some of the first members of the press had started to arrive outside. A straight-up bullet wound. Everyone in that room now knew this was murder. And now, this was an active crime scene. And now, the press coverage could no longer be contained on Alvarado Court. As William Mann poetically writes in Tinseltown, Murder was not a word easily contained. It leaped like a gazelle through the courtyard, sending people running to their phones. I'm not one of the greedy kind. All of my one thoughts simple. I know what's on my mind. I'm not resting until I find what would make your eyes listen with joy. Now listen, big boy. Mary Miles Minter didn't find out about Taylor's death until around 11 o'clock that morning, and she found out from, as William Mann puts it in Tinseltown, the least desirable source imaginable, the good old showbiz mom and chief Charlotte Shelby, the woman who, if you'll recall, had made it her personal mission to not only keep Mary away from the now-dead William Desmond Taylor, but also the woman who had taken to threatening him with violence. Mary had just woken up, still recovering from recently shooting a film scene in which she had been submerged in cold water when Mom starts banging on her door, demanding to talk to her. When Mary finally answers the door, first thing out of Mrs. Shelby's mouth is, Taylor has been murdered. Not to jump the gun with our story, but... It's difficult to say how Mrs. Shelby already possessed this knowledge. After some tense back and forth, Mary finished getting dressed and made a beeline for her car outside. And when her mother tried to stand in her way, demanding to know where she was going, Mary simply said she was going, quote, to him, of course, unquote, and that if Mrs. Shelby wouldn't get out of her way, well, she was ready to, quote unquote, throttle her to get past. <laughs> so there you go. That's devotion. For whatever reason, this was one of the only times that Mrs. Shelby ever backed down from her daughter, almost as if she was afraid of the anger she was unaware Mary possessed. Her flight to Taylor's home is relatively inconsequential to the story of that morning, only that she delivered a hell of a silent film actress performance of the gathered press with her hand on her forehead and her proclamations of Taylor's loveliness. Her appearance at Taylor's bungalow later that morning may not have had much of an impact on the initial investigation, but it definitely put her on the radars of the people in charge of finding out just who killed William Desmond Taylor. Detective Sergeant King was the name of the man who was going to head up this investigation now that it was clear that Taylor had been murdered. He'd been put on the case by the Los Angeles District Attorney, one Thomas Woolwine, a guy known for his passionate displays in the courtroom, having once decked a rival attorney across the face mid-trial, those were the days, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but he was also a guy with the California governorship in his crosshairs, Thomas Woolwine. And if he was the DA that cracked the case on the murder of a prominent Hollywood director that was making headlines everywhere within 24 hours of its discovery, well, that mansion on H Street in Sacramento was probably going to be his. So I get it. His desire to see the case solved makes a lot of sense. That was his thinking, and that's also why he put King on the case, since 
Detective Sergeant King was a cop known for cracking cases, since he was known for solving more crimes in Southern California than literally anybody else there. But Woolwine also put King on the case because he was pretty sure, as were a good chunk of officers in the LAPD, that he already knew who did the deed. In his view, if anyone had to ask who had reason to kill William Desmond Taylor, they just hadn't been paying attention and had apparently never heard of a former employee of Taylor's named Edward Sands. Hopefully, you'll remember Edward Sands from part one of this duology, the former valet to Taylor who loved forging checks, faking signatures, putting on a weird Cockney accent that fooled nobody, and probably was a close talker to all of Taylor's female neighbors. Does that ring a bell? It made sense in the heat of the moment, the first 48 hours after Taylor's murder, to pin the deed on Sands. He was a petty thief, a criminal. People who had interacted with him described him as edgy or twitchy. You might recall that he knew his way around guns and didn't seem to have any issue with using them to get what he wanted. And on top of that, he was already wanted in connection to the murder victim for, you know, trying to cash bad checks, for trying to blackmail him in addition to that. It was an easy peg as far as the political opportunists like D.A. Thomas Woolwine were concerned. But here's the thing. There were, and still are, because there are people out there who do subscribe to the Sands theory, thinking the law of parsimony applies in this case. There are, But there are a good number of problems with the Sands theory, the Edward Sands theory, I should say, as we'll call it. First of all, as we covered in the first episode, by the time Taylor was murdered, there was no evidence that Edward Sands was even in Los Angeles, if even the state of California, seeing as he had a warrant out for his arrest, and he had enough of a criminal past, namely trying to cash bad checks and stealing cars, to know how to steer clear of a place where the cops were looking for him. He was still trying to cash bad checks with Taylor's signature up until then, and we know this since, remember, Taylor and Mabel were looking over these things the night he was killed. But there was also the fact that nothing of value in Taylor's home had been taken, like I mentioned earlier, uh, after he was murdered. And as Detective King noted, whether or not Edward Sands was the murderer was irrelevant since he was, above all things, a thief. Why would a known thief not steal the money in Taylor's desk, or at least take the gold watch from his wrist or the diamond ring from his finger? And then there was the fact that the man that Faith McLean saw outside of Taylor's bungalow wasn't familiar to her. She knew Sansa's face, and she didn't recognize the man outside Taylor's bungalow at all. Remember how I mentioned in the last episode that Sands was bow-legged and how that would come up later? In addition to that, he was also relatively short, 5 feet and 7 inches, and weighed around 195 pounds. So that does kind of match the description given by Faith McLean, who did note that the man did have kind of a funny walk, which could be produced by bowed legs, but it doesn't match up with the other information that happened earlier that night. Some nearby gas station attendants remembered a tall man showing up at their filling station and asking for directions to William Desmond Taylor's house. Putting aside the fact that no one would mistake Sands for tall, why would Sands need directions to the home of his former employer so close to his former employer's home? But this didn't stop members of both the LAPD and the press to continue pushing the Sands theory on anyone who would listen. It made the case easy, open and shut, to just have Taylor's bitter former employer do it. There were even some wackier theories floating around about Sands and the press, one that he was a jilted lover of Taylor's, and the other, the far more juicy one, as it happens, believe it or not, was that Edward Sands was actually William Desmond Taylor's brother from his former life, Dennis Tanner. 
You might remember from the last episode that William Desmond Taylor had abandoned his former life. And in that former life, not just having a wife and daughter in there, he had a family. He had a brother, a brother named Dennis Tanner. Now, this conspiracy theory was helped by the fact that Sands was not actually Edward Sands' real name. His real name was Edward Snyder. But there are plenty of obvious problems with this theory. First of all, just no. <laughs> just no. <laughs> Second of all, Sands looked nothing like Taylor's brother Dennis and was 15 years younger than him. And third of all, fingerprints and handwriting samples never matched. And honestly, this theory is fun, but it just made no sense on just about every level. So we can file that away into the fun theories that you can find all over the internet about the murder of William Desmond Taylor. So these kinds of holes uh, in and wackadoo theories about the Sands theory are, at least in part, why Detective Sergeant King didn't buy it, which was a good impulse, despite so many others on the police force who did believe it. And it does beg the question, if the proven criminal with possibly violent tendencies, at least a twitchy trigger finger kind of guy, didn't do it, then who did? Because by the time he started investigating the murder, Detective Sergeant King already had his sights on someone else. Someone that fit much more snugly into the narrative that the Yellow Press, especially in the papers owned by William Randolph Hearst, remember, were frantically spinning with blaring headlines such as, Find the Woman. This is where we sort of have to briefly hit pause so I can explain what makes this case so fascinating to me in a lot of ways and so difficult for pretty much everybody who lets themselves get sucked into it and subsequently why I realized it required far more than one episode if I wanted to keep this tale under four hours. Five, really, if we're being honest. So bear with me. Trying to explain this case is complicated because the three main sources on it, the three main secondary sources, I should say, a cast of killers by Sidney Kirkpatrick, a deed of death by Robert Giraud, and Tinseltown, the one I've been quoting a lot, by William J. Mann, they all come to three different conclusions as to who killed William Desmond Taylor and why. Primary sources from the period are really no better, though, since A, the case is technically a cold one, B, any physical evidence that might have been saved has long since been lost and discarded, and C, the aforementioned unreliable yellow press of the time. And there are many other theories out there as well. Lord knows there are. But for the sake of sticking to the sources we do have available, the main sources that most people can get a hold of or will go out of their way to get a hold of, at least for entertainment value, all we can really do is approach each of these theories as presented by their respective authors, while, of course, allowing me to offer my hottest of takes <laughs> interspersed between them and at the very end. So, getting back to our story and what I'm going to call the King Vidor narrative, Detective Sergeant King shared the opinion that would later be held by one of Taylor's contemporaries, silent film actor and later director King Vidor, who was the subject of the book... A Cast of Killers by Sidney Kirkpatrick, the first source, the first main secondary source of our story. Vidor would become obsessed with the Taylor case later in his life, and in the 1960s became something of a private investigator, sort of an amateur, trying to compile all of the information that he could about the case so he could make it into basically the crime film of the century. After Vidor died in 1982, the author of A Cast of Killers, Sidney Kirkpatrick, got a hold of Vidor's allegedly copious notes on the subject and wrote this book that we're talking about. Now, for full disclosure, this source is probably the least credible of the three. 
it's written essentially as a hard-boiled crime thriller complete with an affair and stealthily obtained police files and just a general sense of a washed-up filmmaker down on his luck, inching ever closer to cracking the case of the century, basically. And, and it's fun. It's a lot of fun. But it's impossible to say how much of it is true because there are no sources. There's no bibliography in the book. There are some things that it covers and pulls from that can be confirmed by cross-referencing them with the other sources and making use of the fine work by the people over at taylorology.com and Yes, that is a thing, but it's a very valuable thing for researching this particular story. But those fine people have even made a very lengthy page dedicated to an item-by-item debunking and critique of the inaccuracies from this book. So just know that when I pull information or even quotes from this book, they're either confirmed or at least highly likely to be at least somewhat true. But please feel free to take some of the claim statements in this book with a grain of salt. Probably a pretty big one. So, okay, I'll stop stalling. What was this theory that Detective Sergeant King and later King Vidor, and by extension Sidney Kirkpatrick, endorse? It was the theory that drove King to start investigating the young, pretty starlet known as Mary Miles Minter. After all, she was the one who had been making quite a show with the press, as the Los Angeles Record reported, quote, Tears streaming down her pretty face, Mary Miles Minter, famous motion picture star, hurried to the door of the Taylor bungalow at noon today and asked brokenly, It isn't true, is it? Detective Wallace, one of the detectives at the crime scene, along with Ziegler, said, Taylor is dead. Oh my God, I can't believe it, Miss Minter cried out with a gesture of despair, unquote. And that gesture of despair, by the way, was a perfect 1920s silent film actress hand over the forehead swoon of shock. No one ever said Mary Miles Minter was much of an actress, at least in terms of creating subtlety. But add to the performance on the dead man's front steps, she first demanded to see the body, and then when she found out it had been moved to the morgue downtown, she raced there in her little blue McFarlane to see him, quote-unquote, and would later claim that when she was allowed into the room with the body, she placed a gentle farewell kiss on the man she'd loved so dear. She described the event, an event that was illegal, wildly illegal as it happened, and thus placed Mary on Detective King's radar even more so than she already was. She described it in the first issue of H.L. Mencken's American Mercury as follows, quote, They let me in all alone with him. I pulled back the sheet and looked at him. But he was not the same. His skin was waxen. I leaned down and put my arms about him, my cheek to his. His face was so cold, so cold, but not a cold like ice. Do you love me, Desmond, I said. He answered me. I could hear his voice. I love you, Mary. I shall love you always, he whispered. I kissed him and put a red rose in his hands from a bouquet I had brought. Unquote. Yeah, remember how I said in the last episode that her steamy love letter and the sweet nothing she said about him were more skin-crawling than anything? Yeah, that I think that can apply here with her talking and whispering to a corpse. But anyway, not only did Mary's very public histrionics from pretty much day one, not to mention her illegal visit with Taylor's corpse, not only did these things make her a visible part of the case... There was something far, far more sketchy at play. From Detective King's view, 
the Taylor murder reeked of a crime of passion, not a crime of cold calculation, at least as far as King was concerned. After all, when King interviewed Taylor's friend, Arthur Hoyt, the man with whom Taylor had confided about Mary's late night visit when she tried to seduce him, you might remember that from the last episode, he knew right then and there that Mary's feelings for Taylor went deeper than a starlet craving the attention of the press after a murder. In King's view, there was also plenty of evidence at the crime scene that pointed to the notion of Mary being involved somehow. First of all, Taylor's body was positioned in such a way that it looked like he couldn't have fallen or landed the way he did. He looked like he'd been sort of laid out, like he was already in the casket. In addition, the positioning of the chair that had intertwined his legs appeared as if it had been placed rather than dropped by Taylor as many, including King, initially assumed. Taylor had most likely raised the chair in self-defense at the sight of the gun that was pointed at him and the gun that killed him, ultimately. The angle and location of the bullet wound and the path of the bullet itself and powder burn tests conducted by Detective King actually suggested that the gun had been fired while Taylor's arms were raised. But the chair, there's no way the chair would have come crashing down in a perfectly stable position conveniently placed intertwined between Taylor's legs. The probability of that was about as likely as Taylor sitting up and telling the gathered crowd that first morning who the person was that had shot him. And, in addition to all this, the height of the bullet wound was such that it's likely that the killer was either a man of below average height, or even a man kneeling down, or, as King surmised, perhaps a woman barely clearing five feet. And then, there was the physical evidence. First, there were the love letters from Mary to Taylor. We read probably the steamiest one in part one of this story, like I referenced earlier, but there were many, many others found in Taylor's home. One simply said, I love you, three times, followed by about half a million X's signifying kisses. It would turn out that the love letters found by the police a few days later and used as evidence in King's investigation weren't actually where they'd originally been, though. In fact, they had been planted, like some other pieces of evidence, a few days after Aiton and the employees from Famous Players Lasky had cleared Taylor's home of all the correspondence and documents. Why these letters specifically were removed and then placed back at the scene of the crime is something we'll get into later, but whether or not they were planted by Charles Aiton, they were still in Taylor's possession, like most letters he received from friends and colleagues. And then, even more damning of Mary's potential involvement with both Taylor and his death... There was a discovery of the handkerchief with the monogram M.M.M. embossed in its corner. Mary would later claim that she had slipped this handkerchief into Taylor's breast pocket of one of his many, many gray suit coats that he wore when saying goodbye to him once. And that may have indeed been the case, but add that to the letters, you can see why Detective King was really considering Mary Miles Minter to at least be a person of interest in this case. But then finally, there were the hairs. Three blonde hairs that had been found on the lapel of the jacket Taylor had worn. When King had gotten a hold of those and saw their golden color and their curl and learned that Taylor's valet, Henry Peavy, was meticulous when it came to cleaning not just Taylor's home but also Taylor's suits, he knew something was up. There was no way those hairs would have stayed on Taylor's coat for weeks or even days with a valet as apparently fastidious as Peavy, King reasoned. This was what really put Mary Miles Minter in King's sights, but he did have to be sure, so he bribed a kid at the studio to sneak into Mary's dressing room while she was out shooting and retrieve some hair samples from one of her brushes. The kid returned with the hairs, and despite being well before our age of DNA matching, not to mention, you know, stricter rules involving retrieving physical samples from witnesses without a warrant, 
King saw gold, both literally and figuratively. The blonde hairs on Taylor's coat matched the ones from Mary's brush, according to the expert who looked at them under a microscope. This is where it's safe to say that King developed a fixation on Mary Miles Minter as a person of interest. Early in the investigation, when he started to suspect that this was a crime of passion, Detective King posited the theory that Taylor's murder was the result of a love triangle gone sour. Perhaps the Minter girl who was clearly in love with Taylor not only didn't receive his affections, but was passed up for another dame, was his thinking. Maybe she came over the night of his death, pressed herself against the director, explaining how the hairs had made their way under his jacket lapel, and then wept as she fired a spiteful bullet into him, the find-the-woman angle in the early press reports, which also contained some fanciful fabrications including a nightgown that, like the handkerchief that was found, had the initials MMM monogrammed on it. Very well, this angle could have helped shape this narrative, this woman narrative in, in Detective King's head, but regardless... There was enough physical and circumstantial evidence to make King satisfied that Mary needed to at least be questioned. There was only one problem. Detective King was being told to leave Mary alone, and he was being told to leave her alone by the very man who had put him on the case. We're talking about District Attorney Thomas Woolwine again. After presenting Woolwine with the evidence that Mary Miles Minter may have had some involvement with the case... Woolwine not only told King to just drop it with very little explanation, but he essentially forced King to give a statement to the press that Sands was the lead the DA's office was actively pursuing. Not only that, it became clear that Woolwine didn't want anyone snooping any further into this story. Before King found the hairs that matched Mary's under the lapel of Taylor's suit, he had gone to retrieve Taylor's personal effects only to find that they were about to be incinerated since the DA had apparently made the call that they were no longer valuable as evidence. King managed to save the evidence before incineration, but this just made him, a very stubborn kind of guy in case you can't tell, all the more convinced that the Mary angle needed to be looked into. But the idea of Mary herself being the trigger woman ultimately just didn't sit right with Detective King, and it ultimately didn't sit right with the other King in our story, King Vidor. Mary was distraught and even pretty clearly mentally unwell, as later interactions with King Vidor and herself suggested, but she was just as hopelessly in love with Taylor in life as she was with him in death. She never seemed to have gotten over him. So the idea of her killing him just didn't seem to fit, at least on an emotional level. Her tears reported in the press seemed real enough, and when Detective King and his partner Detective Wynn finally managed to score an interview with Mary while her mother was out of town... They figured there was no way that she could be that good of an actor. The girl was essentially cleared from King's mind as a suspect, but not as a potential reason for the Taylor murder. This is because there was someone else in Mary's life who had plenty of reason to kill William Desmond Taylor, at least as far as Detective King was concerned after talking to Mary and getting some witness statements from around the studio. It was the woman who had already threatened Taylor, specifically with the intent of, quote, blowing his goddamn brains out, unquote, and the woman who did indeed own a thirty-eight snub-nosed pistol that she'd had on her person during her late-night visit to Taylor's home in search of Mary a few months before his death. There was plenty of circumstantial evidence that pointed to Charlotte Shelby. Not only did her former secretary, Charlotte Whitney, confirm King's suspicions by telling him that she thought her former boss was dangerous, including the story about Mrs. Shelby bringing the gun to Taylor's home months before the murder happened— but King was hearing stories all over the studio about Mrs. Shelby's temper, including from scenarist Julia Crawford Ivers, who apparently repeated the, quote, blow your goddamn brains out, unquote, story. 
While King and Wynn were able to question Charlotte Shelby at one point, she was just giving perfect sort of positive PR answers saying that she adored William Desmond Taylor. He was the utmost gentleman, I believe was the quote that she provided. Basically, they got nothing out of her when they actually did get a chance to speak to her. So so basically, she gave them nothing, sort of keeping them at square one, where they really always were when you really think about it, despite things like the letters, the monogrammed handkerchief, and the hairs they found on Taylor's jacket. So it's fair to say Detective King got kind of desperate, but also kind of clever, because King and his partner Wynne went behind Woolwine's back at one point and hired a PI, a private investigator named Nick Harris, who King knew, and they hired him to plant a story in the LA Times about a spiritualist who claimed that there was a society woman with a very beautiful daughter with whom Taylor had been intimate. In the claim made by the quote-unquote spiritualist, as in a spiritualist who probably never existed, If the unnamed mother didn't come forward within two weeks, the spiritualist would reveal her name to the press. Since, as the old saying goes, they'll print anything these days, the LA Times went with the story, headlining it, quote, Spirit has real dope on killing, unquote, on October 4th, 1922. No names were given except King, since his investigation was essentially public knowledge. And yet, despite there being no mention of Mrs. Shelby or Mary Miles Minter, a mysterious lawyer suddenly dropped in on King and demanded he cease and desist with rumor-mongering, but, quote-unquote, weirdly, <laughs> never gave his name or the name of his client. Basically, a like a we-all-know-perfectly-well-who-we're-talking-about kind of deal. Needless to say, this just made the stubborn Detective King even more stubborn to investigate Mrs. Shelby to keep going on this lead of his. Because there was plenty of motive for Mrs. Shelby to be the trigger woman. She was the ultimate stage mom for sure, but she did have a cruel, commodifying streak in her. She essentially forced Mary onto a stage at far too young of an age, and when she was told that Mary was too young to be performing at night, she sent for a dead cousin's birth certificate to use for her daughter. The dead cousin's name was Mary Miles Minter. The girl we've been calling Mary, like Taylor, had her name changed as well. Her real name was actually Juliet Riley, and when her mother nabbed the new birth certificate, Mary was now 16. Too bad, when she was supposedly 16, she was only 10 years old. So, in addition, and and this does relate to the daddy issues that we talked about in the last episode and that we've sort of casually referenced here every so often, Mary's attraction to older men didn't just begin with Taylor. Shortly after turning 15, she had met and worked with the actor James Kirkwood. Almost without missing a beat, she was swooning on a rock as he claimed that they were married in the eyes of God, and then rolling around and losing her virginity to the 40-something-year-old guy, getting pregnant in the process, and then being forced into an illegal abortion by Charlotte Shelby. After that incident, Mary pretty much felt nothing but hatred for dear old mom, and understandably so. I'll be, I'll be honest, very understandably so. Despite how naive Mary was about Kirkwood, who was already married with children and spending all of his time with them since their romp in the field, that's because Mrs. Shelby's ambitions for money and recognition and independence had always involved using her daughter as a proxy. Anything that got in the way of that was, as far as Mrs. Shelby was concerned, collateral damage. Indeed, that's how Mary saw it. It's obviously impossible to verify the story, like I was saying earlier, but as King Vidor claimed in his notes that he took when interviewing Mary decades later, quote, My mother has killed everything I ever loved, unquote. Those were Mary's words, supposedly. Could that everything include William Desmond Taylor? 
even without knowing all these sordid details about Mrs. Shelby and Mary's troubled relationship, King Vidor seemed to think that there was enough evidence to suggest it was likely. And so did Detective Sergeant King back in 1922. And now his investigation was being railroaded by the very guy who hired him to do it. What King didn't know was that Thomas Woolwine had plenty of motive to try and cover Mary and by extension her mother's tracks. Not only had Thomas Woolwine apparently had a brief affair with Mrs. Shelby a number of years before, that's easy to suppose he just wasn't over and why he'd be hung up on a woman like her is beyond me, but regardless, he had done something far, far worse. As soon as the autopsy report arrived on his desk that showed William Desmond Taylor had been killed by a 38 bullet, and as soon as the press began hounding his office for quotes about Mary's possible involvement with the murder, Woolwine first remembered that Shelby had a 38 caliber revolver, and then he realized that he had made a mistake, probably the biggest mistake he could have made many months before. He had been the one who had gotten her that gun. Specifically, he had hired a private investigator friend of his. It seems like everybody had a private investigator friend in Hollywood back then, if you ask me. But he hired this PI friend of his to obtain the gun for her so she could protect herself. You know, decent enough thing to do, I suppose. But now that she was in the crosshairs of King, it was only a matter of time that this suspicion would be leaked to the press, and soon afterward, potentially, so too would the fact that Woolwine had gotten Mrs. Shelby a rumored murder weapon. And... With an election to the governorship looming on the horizon, well, it it really just didn't look all that good for District Attorney Thomas Woolwine. He had every reason to try and dissuade King from this line of investigation. I don't blame him. But not that he'd have to worry too much. Julia Miles, Mrs. Shelby's mother and the woman that Mary actually called Mama, was on her way to the family plantation in Louisiana while all of this was unfolding in the months following Taylor's death. Julia wasn't just going down to see family who still lived there. She was headed to the nearby bayou. This was according to Mary's sister, Margaret, who told a detective, Leroy Sanderson, about this trip in August of 1922, recounting that her and Mary's grandmother had simply gone to nearly the other end of the country to chuck a certain 38 caliber revolver into the swamp. Who else would have their own mother do that apart from a guilty woman who took her rage against a director who she saw as a threat to her cash cow, Mary, too far. This was certainly in line with King Vidor's thinking, who purportedly was given access to the police files by retired chief of the LAPD's detectives, Thad Brown. While looking at these files, Vidor, illegally, it's worth pointing out, made a secret audio recording of himself reading the file's contents aloud, which he used to transcribe notes later. There's literally no way of confirming that the recordings even happened, or even if they were accurate, but what Vidor allegedly found, or rather didn't find in the files, was suspicious, to say the least. Because, as it's put in the section devoted to the Taylor case in Ginny Graham Scott's American Murder, quote, It was almost as if, Vidor suspected, someone had carefully pruned the files of evidence so the police couldn't solve the case, unquote. But thankfully, as far as Vidor was concerned, he had not only enough information to make a damn fine crime film, but enough to piece together the mystery of who killed William Desmond Taylor. So what was King Vidor's theory? The theory that Detective King had indeed toyed with, and almost come close to really just laying out himself during the investigation he was conducting. Vidor suspected that even while Mabel Norman stopped by William Desmond Taylor's bungalow on the night of February 1st, 1922, and they sat, talked, drink gin blossoms, and laughed together as Mabel played the piano, 
that Mary Miles' mentor was actually upstairs the whole time, waiting for Taylor to get everyone out of the house so they could continue their torrid love affair. Charlotte Shelby, convinced that she needed to confront Taylor again, like she had a number of months before, waited until Mabel had left, not knowing Mary was upstairs, and, while Taylor was out saying goodbye to Mabel and laughing at the peanut shell debris scattered outside her limousine, ducked into his bungalow to lie and wait for him. However, seeing a surprise Mary Miles Minter descending the stairs from Taylor's bedroom on the second floor, Shelby now knew everything she needed to. When Taylor returned, there was nothing to do but fire once he entered the bungalow, shooting him dead, perhaps as he raised a nearby chair to defend himself. She ordered a shocked Mary to go to her waiting car, and the distraught little actress took a moment to give her lover a farewell kiss, some of her golden hairs, of course, making their way under the gallant Mr. Taylor's collar. Mrs. Shelby, after doing some quick rearrangements of the chair and then the body, then bundled up in her giant coat and hat that she had worn to disguise her identity enough so that she could be mistaken for a man, which was exactly what Taylor's neighbor Faith McLean saw as Mrs. Shelby exited the bungalow, gave her a cool smile from the shadows, and made a quick departure into the night. Whew! <laughs> so... There's a lot of other details surrounding the Mary Angle of this case, most of them involving family drama that happened before, during, and after this whole affair, but you can see how this narrative, the King Vidor narrative as we're calling it, is compelling. It's a good story. This narrative by King Vidor is by far the juiciest story of the three, for sure. The problem is that it doesn't really hold up, really in any way. Anything is certainly possible, and witness testimony is certainly unreliable, but... There were far too many accounts involving strange men, whether it was the man Faith McLean saw outside Taylor's bungalow, the man asking for directions at the filling station, or the other instances of strange men in the neighborhood. The coolness of the person who left Taylor's bungalow and who was described by Faith McLean also doesn't really do Detective King's crime of passion theory any favors. Plus, the cover-up that made Mrs. Shelby look even more guilty in King Vior's eyes doesn't really take much to explain. Woolwine had plenty of reason to conceal Mary Miles Minter from Detective King's investigation, if only for the fact that he wanted to protect a woman, Charlotte Shelby, for whom he still had feelings, not to mention his own reputation while he was trying to win an election to the governor's office. It wouldn't have looked good, remember, if it had become known that he had even maybe provided a potential murder weapon. The case was approached sloppily, the evidence was mishandled, and Woolwine basically obstructed justice, yes. But, was this to conceal a murderess, as Charlotte Shelby would have been called back then? Not likely. Plus, Mrs. Shelby had an alibi, although that wouldn't be revealed until she was brought before a grand jury during a legal battle that she was having with her daughters over, what else, money. While in court, the William Desmond Taylor case suddenly came back to life, thanks to fresh accusations by Mrs. Shelby's other, now depressed and alcoholic, spiteful daughter, Margaret Minter, claiming that not only did no one in the family know where Mrs. Shelby was the night of the Taylor murder, but that she believed Mrs. Shelby had straight up done the deed herself. Mrs. Shelby, ever the southern aristocrat who probably saw kissing and telling as worse than her daughter sleeping with William Desmond Taylor, finally admitted the truth of what she was doing. She was indeed not at home the night of Taylor's murder. But she wasn't at Taylor's house either. She was with the actor Carl Stockdale between the hours of 7.30 and 9 p.m. What they were doing during that hour and a half is mostly left up to the imagination, but when Stockdale corroborated the story himself, with nothing to gain or lose, by the way, at this point, 
that pretty much closed the book on the find the woman theory, at least in terms of it being Charlotte Shelby. This was a matter of public record by the time King Vidor looked into this case 30 years later, so it was kind of weird to me when I learned of this alibi. Why would he overlook this pretty damn solid alibi for consideration? But then I remembered something, and I think we should all remember something. King Vidor was a filmmaker, not a documentarian, not a journalist, and obviously not a real detective, private or otherwise. He was looking for a story to tell. And again, this is a juicy story. It's a great story, illogical plot holes and all, but it's still just a story that a Hollywood filmmaker in his late 60s, early 70s, desperate for a hit, is more likely to fall for. So, while this is definitely the most fun theory, it just doesn't really hold up to scrutiny, like any good conspiracy theory. It just requires too many moving parts, and in a lot of ways, hinges on mostly circumstantial evidence, though, to be fair, all three of these narratives, and really any theory or narrative claiming to have the answer of who killed William Desmond Taylor, are stuck doing that. Detective King, for his part, would continue investigating Mary Miles Minter and Charlotte Shelby and the angle of them being involved for months and months, even years, after the murder, and it would remain with him for years, all thanks to his gut feeling that blinded him to Occam's razor. And it's important to remember the law of Occam's razor here, or in some cases, what psychologists might call the law of parsimony. The possible solution, with the least amount of variables, should be considered over all others. And our next narrative, our next theory, that is floated by Robert Giraud in our second secondary source, A Deed of Death, is much simpler than the story of a lovesick starlet and her evil showbiz mom who dresses up like a man to kill a man. In Hollywood, in Hollywood, someone is lonesome in Hollywood. She yearns for fame. She spurns love's flame. She Remember Mabel Normand? I kind of see Mabel as sort of the tragic heroine of our story. I mean, because she lived a hard, hard life, as we kind of covered in the last episode, from the drugs to the affairs to the abusive relationships, which included Samuel Goldwyn, and then her BFF, and I don't use that term lightly, believe it or not, her BFF just gets up and murdered immediately after she had just spent a nice little evening with him sharing a couple of cocktails and laughs. Not only that, after everything involving Taylor's murder, she'd be caught up in other scandals, including, believe it or not, another shooting less than two years after Taylor's death. While attending a New Year's party with Edna Purviance, actually, at a man who Robert Giraud describes as a, quote, playboy, unquote, uh, named Cortland Dines at this guy's place, her new chauffeur, a clearly crazy son of a bitch named Joe Kelly, shot Dines with Mabel's gun. I mean, he had a bit of a white knight complex, thinking that Dines was keeping Mabel, quote-unquote, all hopped up, according to his later testimony, but in reality, he was just crazy. 
And while Dines was fine, ultimately, he was only slightly wounded, Mabel's career just plummeted after that, when coupled with the reignited Taylor story because it involved a shooting and it involved Mabel Normand again. But why should Mabel's association with William Desmond Taylor be deemed so toxic? I mean, while I think it was rooted in all the papers searching for good copy, I think there was more to it than that. It's not just because she was the last person on record as seeing him alive. The American press were basically just out to bury Mabel along with Taylor from the start. Basically, Mabel's slander had made for some of the best copy a lot of these papers and columnists had ever seen. Best subscription numbers, that kind of thing. This is actually in line with the investigation's early stages because Detective Sergeant King didn't quite start his investigation with Mary Miles Minter. He actually started with Mabel Norman thanks to an anonymous tip sent to Thomas Woolwine that if the police went into the basement of Mabel Norman's apartment complex, they would find the gun that killed William Desmond Taylor, specifically a pearl-handled 38 revolver. Detective King reported in a piece that he wrote for True Detective Mysteries in 1930 about this, quote, I went to Miss Norman's apartment, accompanied by Lieutenants Wynne, Murphy, and Klein, where we made a thorough search of the house, including the basement. From cellar to attic we went, devoting a great length of time to turning over everything where it could be possible to hide a gun. In a dresser drawer in Miss Norman's bedroom, we found two twenty-five caliber revolvers, neither of which could have had any connection with the murder. No other gun was found. Unquote. Who sent the letter, though, is a question, trying to pin some sort of guilt on Mabel Normand. It wasn't known, though it was suspected to be a quote-unquote lady of refinement based on the handwriting style, leading to some speculation that it might have been Mrs. Shelby, though I, I couldn't find any actual evidence of this. But regardless, King quickly ruled out Mabel Normand as a suspect or even having anything to do with the murder of William Desmond Taylor. But that didn't stop the press from hounding her or, more importantly, her drug-fueled past, which did indeed contain some suspicious characters and events that were, and are, worth looking more closely at. As you recall from the last episode, we did talk about some of them for a little while. And this is where we get into what I call the Robert Giraud narrative, the second of the three major theories surrounding the murder of William Desmond Taylor based on our main secondary sources. In case you forgot some of the stories from the first part of the Great Hollywood cover-up, it's important to remember a few things we covered there. First, remember that Mabel did indeed have a drug problem, a serious one at that. So serious that there were plenty of stories that we didn't even cover related to her drug usage, including a, a particularly sad one, I feel kind of bad I left out, but here you go, uh, where, uh, in which a friend of hers came to visit her in her hotel room a little while after a premiere of one of her films. The friend described the room just reeking of decay because it was filled with boxes and boxes and boxes of flowers that she'd received in like a week or two as congratulations for her new film, and all the flowers had just rotted away. Mabel was essentially in a post-cocaine coma, having been binging for days, probably by herself, and now looking like basically an unkempt corpse. Shortly after this episode was when William Desmond Taylor provided her the moral support, um, and I think if I recall the financial support to help clean her up. And that is the next important thing for us to remember, as Robert Giraud would have it at least. William Desmond Taylor's role in cleaning up Mabel Normand from her wretched drug habit. In fact, as Giraud and several of the sources he covers in his book A Deed of Death would have it, Taylor and Mabel's relationship was sort of a perverse inverse of Taylor's relationship with the young Mary Miles Minter. In other words, William Desmond Taylor was hopelessly in love with the hilarious, self-confident, powerful, and yet very clearly damaged Mabel Normand, who 
had pretty much friend-zoned him from day one. As Giroux says with quite a bit of certainty in his account of their relationship, quote, Mabel knew that Taylor, who was in love with her, was the one person determined to help her, unquote. This narrative of Taylor being in love with Mabel, or at least that there was something sordid going on between them, wasn't helped by a lot of the press's speculation at the time because, like the narrative that they had pushed with their reports on the mysterious nightgown with the monogram, or more importantly, Mary Miles Minter's love letters to him, Taylor had a picture of Mabel Norman on display in his living room, and they had frequently been seen attending dinners and dances together, and most importantly, the letters that she had sent to Taylor. This narrative came out a week after the inquest set up by L.A. District Attorney Thomas Woolwine, in which Mabel was one of the witnesses questioned about the last time she saw Taylor, the record of which, as it happens, is where we got a lot of the information about that final evening they spent together. A week after the inquest, Mabel actually took Woolwine to Taylor's bungalow to walk him through the events of that night and asked him if she could go up to his room, to Taylor's room specifically, and look for the letters that she had sent him, knowing that he kept them in his dresser. The thing is, they weren't there. They weren't there because, like all the other documents Taylor kept, they had been taken by Aiton, Charles Aiton, and the other employees of Famous Players Lasky the morning after the murder. And that does beg the question, why would personal correspondence between friends, even personal correspondence between a woman with platonic feelings and a man with a horrible case of nice guy syndrome, why would that be seen as worth hiding by the studio? In other words, what could be in those letters that was so damning? Well, not much according to Mabel herself. In a statement she made about the letters, she said, quote, These letters are all such of a nonsensical nature that they have absolutely no value, except as they exhibit and illustrate a good fellowship which existed between Mr. Taylor and myself. My letters were also childish and so simple that they would have meant nothing but perhaps a moment's cheer to so wonderful a man as Mr. Taylor, unquote. Mabel would also add that she didn't care if the entire world saw the letters, but she just was more worried that they would be misunderstood if people did see them. And it's certainly possible that they might have contained certain truths that she didn't want aired, including her own sordid past with drugs and perhaps her affairs with people like Sam Goldwyn. But the letters apparently didn't have too much damning information in them, at least as far as Famous Players was concerned, because they would later turn up in the toe of one of Taylor's riding boots during a visit to the bungalow by none other than Famous Players Lasky's general manager, Charles Ayton. The letters apparently contained flirty language, like Mabel referring to herself as Taylor's blessed baby, quote-unquote, whatever that means, and one of Taylor's to her saying, quote, Dear Mabel, I know you're an awfully busy woman and haven't much time to grant to a poor duffer like me, but how about dinner together next Wednesday? And then the Orpheum, yours always, Bill. Unquote. But there really was nothing in there, in any of those letters, to suggest a hint at who killed him. So, Taylor cared immensely about Mabel Normand. That much is clear. And he was the one who helped get her clean. That too is clear. And as we explored in our last episode, we know that he reserved a special place in hell for drug pushers in Hollywood. Remember the story about how he shoved and beat the crap out of the drug dealer who had come to Mabel's door after she'd gotten clean? Or how Taylor had made it his personal mission to clean up the entire studio system, or famous players at least, uh, from the influence of drugs? And how he went straight to the assistant U.S. attorney Thomas Green to scare off the dealers altogether? This mission, to clean up his part of Los Angeles at least from the influence of drugs, may not have been wholly successful, but it definitely did put William Desmond Taylor on the radars of a lot of people who probably wouldn't be too happy that he was cutting into their most profitable clients, including Mabel Normand. 
That is the crux of Robert Giraud's theory. In his blind love for Mabel Normand and in his desire to save her from complete destruction, Taylor pissed off the wrong people. A veteran Hollywood scenarist from the early 19-teens named Anita Luz described how drugs infected Hollywood pretty much right from the beginning in her memoir, A Girl Like I, in which she wrote, quote, The underworld, quick to take advantage of any new field, very soon moved in on Hollywood and set up headquarters in a suburb called Vernon. Movie actors quickly deserted the Hollywood Hotel as a playground and ventured out to the Vernon Country Club. Hanging around the club bar were pushers of dope. They had an easy time converting those simple young drunks into drug addicts, and among their first victims were stars of the first magnitude, Wallace Reed and Mabel Normand. Unquote. The drug game in Hollywood was a strong one from a very early start because of how, well, how essentially lawless Hollywood was. Remember that even though this is California and not Texas, we're talking about it really being less than a decade removed from the era that we would now call the Wild West. Things were changing rapidly technologically, for sure, but the presence of crime wasn't. In fact, the only thing changing about crime was how it was changing with the times, becoming more organized and urban. This is where a man named Dapper Don Collins comes in. Robert Giraud describes this guy, Dapper Don, as, quote, one of the most stylish criminals of the era, unquote. Giraud continues, quote, his colorful crimes and sophisticated methods fascinated reporters and readers alike. He is said to have been the first blackmailer to wiretap telephone conversations. His other enterprises included bootlegging, robbery, the confidence game, and narcotics, unquote. So this Collins guy had essentially established himself as a bit of a kingpin by the time Prohibition rolled around, especially with his uh, whiskey bootlegging business, which allowed him to have around 200 compatriots in his organization. Considering the money to be made, it was inevitable for this ever-growing organization to enter the drug trade, and this was something the Federal Narcotics Division, which not only had been trying to build a narcotics case against Dapper Don for a while, but also learned from the NYPD through their contacts that in early 1922, the year William Desmond Taylor was murdered, remember, that Collins was, guess where, Los Angeles. Not only that, and here's the kicker Robert Giraud gives us, Collins had directly attempted, quote, to use a movie actress in a blackmail attempt, unquote. Giraud even floats the idea that the guy Taylor beat the crap out of at Mabel's back door, and possibly the man who jumped out of the bushes at Taylor during the film shoot, was this dapper Don Collins, or at least a man or men who worked for him. So consider this given the speculation. Could it be that this dapper Don, or one of his lugs, was the trigger man that killed William Desmond Taylor? It does certainly fit. Mabel Norman was a big drug user, a big customer for an organization like Collins's, if not Collins's organization itself. Taylor intervenes, helps Mabel get clean, beats up a dealer, or possibly the boss himself. Then Taylor declares war on the drug pushers by going to the U.S. attorney in Los Angeles. This further cuts into their business, putting them on the radar of the authorities. This Taylor fella is making trouble and needs an example made out of him, see? That kind of thing. February 1st rolls around. Collins, or one of his hitmen, shows up in the area of Alvarado Court, asks for directions at the nearby gas station. He waits outside Taylor's home for Mabel to leave, who he sees through the window, while managing to make enough noise for Faith and Doug McLean's maid to hear him. Mabel leaves, Taylor escorts her to her car, so Collins, or his hitman, sneaks through Taylor's open door. Taylor comes back, sees the man, picks up a chair to defend himself, the man kneels, points his gun. Boom. 
Then the hitman leaves, Faith McLean sees him, and notices how cool he is about his exit, which is pretty par for the course with a hardened professional or a hitman, someone for whom it was just business, quote-unquote, wouldn't you say? Could it be that Taylor was whacked for the simple crime of cutting into the drug business? An old friend of Taylor's named Captain E.A. Salisbury even confirmed this story during an interview he was giving in New York, saying, quote, Just five days before Taylor was killed, I had a long chat with him, and he told me of the activities of a local drug ring he was fighting. The truth is that Taylor sacrificed himself to save a popular movie star from sinking deeper and deeper into slavery from the use of narcotics. In my opinion, he was slain by someone whose enmity he incurred in his effort to cut off the drug supply of the actress. Bill Taylor threatened to make an example out of the drug peddlers in Hollywood, but they got to him first. Unquote. In my view, this theory works a lot more than King Vidor's theory of the vengeful, wicked stage mom. It's not as sexy, but it definitely works. It has a lot more internal logic. Of course Taylor put a crosshair on his own back when he crossed the dope pushers of Hollywood. They had every reason to go after him since he was hurting their bottom line, and not just with Mabel Norman in the grand scheme of things. Even though his efforts to get the Los Angeles U.S. attorney to go after the drug pushers roaming the studios and the Vernon Country Club, even though it only involved two agents and no arrests were made, the authorities in Los Angeles had clearly started to wise up to their drug-pushing game. This made the criminals like Dapper Don Collins nervous and paranoid, but also angry. Specifically, angry with the man who had changed the circumstances surrounding their trade. It makes perfect sense to imagine that Collins and his ill could come to see Taylor as a liability and decided to hire a professional to plug him full of holes. In addition to that, if an anonymous professional was sent to whack Taylor, it makes sense that he would ask for directions to Taylor's home at the local gas station, and it would make even more sense that Faith McLean didn't recognize the guy leaving Taylor's bungalow. A professional also would have the cool, collected demeanor that Faith McLean described, and probably look like someone's idea of a motion picture burglar. So, like Charlotte Shelby, the motive was there. And unlike Charlotte Shelby or Edward Sands, the witness accounts actually make a bit more sense. It all seems to fit quite well. So, case closed, right? Not so fast. Like before, there is a problem with this theory. The main problem with Giraud's theory is actually quite simple. It mostly has to do with this idea that Mabel was never cleaned up, and that she was simply a junkie who never got better and was simply stringing a love-struck tailor along until he was killed by the very people that he was trying to save her from. The problem with this narrative is that it largely comes from very unreliable sources in the press of the 1920s. In other words, it involves poor sourcing from Robert Giroux. After Mabel had been cleaned up, the muckraking pseudo-journalist Wallace Smith from the Chicago American wrote about an incident that occurred on New Year's Eve 1921, a month before Taylor's murder. According to Smith, Mabel had, quote, a weary droop in her once pert and vivacious features, unquote, and that she was, quote, full of the stuff again, unquote, at this party she attended with Taylor at the Alexandria in downtown L.A., where she, quote, swayed a little, leaning on her escort's arm, unquote. Mabel admitted later on during the testimony she gave to Thomas Woolwine at the inquest that she, quote, unquote, got a little nasty with Taylor uh, when he insisted on taking her home after noticing how intoxicated she was. For God's sake, Mabel remembered saying, why do you stand around with that trick dignity of yours? You make me sick. And eventually they did leave, and Taylor's chauffeur, Howard Fellows, remembered that, quote, Mr. Taylor cried all the way home in the car, unquote. However, the problem comes when Giraud, citing Smith and Doherty, Doherty being the other muckraking pseudo-journalist who had it out for Mabel Norman at the time, 
Giroux just continues to call Mabel quote-unquote drugged up. There was never any evidence of this. Mabel admitted to being a bit drunk that night after having a few too many glasses of champagne at the party, as she was wont to do, but she was more just in a bad mood because Taylor was being a bore as far as she was concerned. But think about it. This was New Year's Eve 1921, almost 1922. This was right in the middle of all of Taylor's drama with Edward Sands continuing to harass him, the mysterious phone calls, the burglary, the man jumping out of the bushes, and of course Mary Miles Minter being basically a stalker. I don't know about you, but if I have that much messed up bullshit crowding my life, the idea of even going out on New Year's Eve doesn't sound too fun to me either, especially if my date has had one too many mimosas. So, not only can Taylor's attitude that night be easily explained without assuming he was being bitter about being friend-zoned, but this notion that Mabel had fallen off the wagon was a notion pulled from this so-called journalist's ass. This journalist who liked to describe the now-clean Mabel as, quote, a young woman except for the premature aging from her use of morphine, unquote, and who liked to claim that Taylor held, quote-unquote, dope parties, even long after it became known that he was a crusader against the dope trade in Hollywood. In case you can't tell from the way I'm talking about him, I'm not much of a fan of Wallace Smith or his partner in muckraking uh, Edward Doherty from the New York Daily News, who I mentioned earlier. Edward Doherty even seemed to have his own kind of dope-like habit of repeatedly claiming that Mabel enjoyed quote-unquote hop feasts. However, despite Smith and Doherty's fixation on Mabel just being about making a quick buck by focusing their columns on the moral depravity of Hollywood through the lens of Mabel-Norman-related gossip, they do reveal to us how this narrative got spun and repeated over the course of nearly a century and why we need to take Giraud's narrative with a grain of salt because a lot of his inferences regarding Mabel's character are based on the articles written by Wallace Smith and Edward Doherty, who, as William Mann put it in Tinseltown, quote, were convinced that Mabel was implicated in some way in Taylor's death. They wouldn't let the idea go, grabbing onto it and swinging it around like a couple of dogs tearing apart a rag doll, unquote. It's also interesting that Giraud never takes Mabel at her word about William Desmond Taylor's interests, since he quotes her talking about Taylor in glowing terms, for not being a guy just trying to start a relationship with her. In this excerpt from one of her statements, Mabel said that Taylor, quote, was not like younger men who always want me to put on evening clothes and go out somewhere to dance and dine. He liked to sit at home and talk about books, unquote. There was no doubt, regardless of why, that Mabel cared deeply for William Desmond Taylor and missed him. Mabel Norman would die on February 23rd, 1930, at the age of 37, of tuberculosis, long before any of the other characters in our story would. While there's some debate as to whether this happened or not, it's said that as she lay on her deathbed, Mabel spoke to her dear friend and nurse, Julia Benson, as she struggled for breath. I wonder who killed poor Bill Taylor. There is one major problem with these first two narratives, the King Vidor slash Sidney Kirkpatrick narrative and the Robert Giraud narrative, and that problem is mainly what they don't cover. 
though largely it's no fault of their own considering how much information had been uncovered surrounding the case at the time when they wrote down their accounts. So you can't really blame them for not knowing stuff they couldn't have known, in other words. The narrative spun by William J. Mann in our oft-quoted Tinseltown is by far the most modern, most complete, and in some ways craziest and most convoluted of them all. And remember that the King Vidor narrative involved a woman dressed as a man, so keep that in mind. And yet, due to all the wealth of sources collected by William Mann, it seems to be the most compelling, at least to me. It calls essentially all of the assumptions made by King Vidor, Sidney Kirkpatrick, and Robert Giroux into question, from the correctness of the evidence against Mrs. Shelby to history's treatment of Mabel Normand in general, all the way to William Desmond Taylor himself. After all of this mystery and intrigue, this might sound like a cheap joke from a dated 90s sitcom, but I really need you to bear with me because this suggestion, really declaration, by William Mann in Tinseltown, changes everything we can assume from here on out and is the crux of our third narrative, the William Mann narrative, or maybe Tinseltown narrative, we can call it. What if William Desmond Taylor was a homosexual? When I say this claim is left out of the other narratives, that's actually not true, necessarily. In fact, there was a theory being floated around in the primary sources shortly after Taylor's death, specifically in the Yellow Press of 1922, adding to the already massive stack of scandals facing Hollywood at the time, quote, dead director visited queer places, unquote. This salacious headline came from one of the multitudes of gossip columns at the time, with a story claiming that Taylor had visited Los Angeles' growing red light district and had spent his time there in all-male brothels. Supposedly, any time he had spent in the Los Angeles red light district had been for quote-unquote research, though, come on. Once this rumor was out in the wild, in addition to the Mary Miles Minter and Mabel Norman rumors, the damage was done, as William Mann puts it. The story was kept alive by one of Famous Players Lasky's most vocal critics and small theater defender, uh, Sidney Cohen, who said regarding the claims, quote, It is a shame that some seem to permit such license. The entire motion picture industry should not be blamed for the moral failures of one concerned, unquote. And when Jesse Lasky and Adolf Zukor probably couldn't imagine things getting any worse with this scandalous rumor that just wouldn't die, the quote-unquote reliable studio manager Charles Ayton, as always, remember the guy who illegally cleared out the documents from Taylor's bungalow and obstructed justice, he made a comment to the press in response to their speculation about Taylor having an affair with Mary Miles Minter, saying, quote, Bill Taylor was never intimate with any woman, unquote. I, I don't think you could hear a collective forehead slap any louder than the one that happened after that perfectly timed gem of a comment. Needless to say, the press, like me right now, love this. It's just, it. I can't help but find it funny. I'm sorry, guys. But the fact that the press of the time was so notorious for, well, just making shit up, frankly, it makes a lot of sense that our other sources mention it, but essentially dismiss it, or straight up float the idea and then never really directly address it again. Robert Giraud pretty much just dismisses the idea out of hand, saying that, quote, no convincing evidence of it was ever presented, unquote, and then goes on to basically make the age-old argument of, well, he was married with a daughter, got engaged to Neva Gerber, and clearly had affairs with women throughout his life, as if that's ever kept a man from being gay, or at least bisexual. In A Cast of Killers, there are some suspicious aspersions toward Taylor's supposed homosexuality in which King Vidor was purported to learn of at least a claim that Taylor had a taste for young boys, 
which is what he had his valet Henry Peavy searching out in Westlake Park when Peavy was arrested shortly before Taylor's murder, which we'll jump back to in a second. As one of the many articles on Taylorology points out about this defamatory account, and one that the writer of this article also seems to believe was completely fabricated by a cast of killers author Sidney Kirkpatrick, which I can't honestly fully dispute, but it points out that this conclusion defies credibility, quote-unquote, since, according to the account, quote, it would appear Vidor is a true psychic, unquote. There was, and is, literally zero evidence that Taylor was a pederast. But it's worth taking a moment to focus on Henry Peavy, like I said, the man who discovered William Desmond Taylor after he'd been killed. Peavy, he was frankly kind of delightful. He was a 40-year-old black man who was, to put it bluntly and in the terms of the time, light in his loafers. And I don't mean that as a slur, by the way. Peavy openly carried himself this way, wearing extravagant, loudly colored clothes and bow ties, walking in an exaggerated sachet. This kind of thing, whether you want to admit it or not, draws attention now, in 2019, especially if you're in certain cities. So imagine this guy in 1922. Probably the most endearing thing about him, according to most accounts, was that he would inevitably get hollered at and ridiculed, and he would simply respond in kind with a sassy comment or some other type of performance. He literally did not give a damn, or more likely, he was like the great fighter Jack Johnson, knowing that if he responded to all the hate with a smile or a laugh, he could use that as armor. Regardless... Peavy was a character, and William Desmond Taylor trusted him almost immediately upon hiring him. And this isn't to say that Taylor was gay because he hired a pretty openly, flamboyantly gay valet, but it is to say that he was indeed comfortable around gay men, and he was known to confide his feelings with Henry Peavy. There's no evidence that they were lovers, but the level of trust they both shared after only working together for such a short time, only a couple months, remember, And the grief with which PV expressed, i.e. weeping loudly in court during the inquest, the point where it actually interfered with the proceedings, this suggests that PV and Taylor were certainly close. So close, in fact, that the night Taylor was killed, he was preparing a statement in PV's defense because he was due to appear in court on the valet's behalf the next morning to defend him against the vagrancy charge, i.e. where the rumor of him searching out young boys for Taylor comes from. The truth was obvious even to Taylor. PV was trying to get laid in the only way gay men would in the 1920s, carousing parks at night. And Taylor didn't think that it was fair for PV to be punished for that. So he was going to take time out of his day to defend PV's character to a judge he knew. Even for a Hollywood libertine like Taylor might have been, this was a very personally progressive attitude for a man of his era and one that I can only really imagine had some element of empathy behind. Like, I know what this is like, sneaking around and getting punished for it, or fear of getting punished for it. And this idea of Taylor being homosexual also helps explain his relationships with women, specifically the two main ones in our story. Think about how often Mabel Norman denied, and denied again, that she and Taylor were lovers. Think about why Taylor cared so deeply for her, but always kept things platonic between them, and treated her as a trusted friend, a BFF. Remember, I used that term earlier, and I said it wasn't flippant. It's, you know, a good word to describe their relationship. And it's certainly possible that Giroux's take, largely cribbed from assumptions made by people who lived during Taylor's time, a time which homosexuality wasn't assumed first, remember, that his take is correct, that Taylor was simply a jilted lover being friend-zoned. But is that more or less likely than Taylor simply not being interested in Mabel like that. I don't know, maybe my own modern biases are showing with this assumption, but 
I think it's actually quite likely that Taylor simply loved Mabel as a friend and his emotions he expressed weeping over her addiction and her treating him poorly were simply those of a sensitive friend concerned for her well-being. And in terms of the other woman in Taylor's life, Mary Miles Minter, I mean, I think even a straight man with an ounce of common sense and self-respect would run for the hills with an obsessive damaged girl like Mary Miles Minter dogging him, but the possibility of Taylor's homosexuality becomes a little more believable when considering how kind he was to Mary and how he essentially kept her at arm's length at all times. It's not that straight men couldn't or wouldn't do the same, but... Well, that just wasn't the way it was back then. Mary found refuge in Taylor for many reasons that we've already covered, but when it comes down to it, the thing that made him so attractive to her, I think, was that he never tried anything on her while literally every other man she encountered was trying to sleep with her. And the best way for a man like Taylor to resist that urge isn't restraint. It's just incompatible sexuality. In fact, Mary might have even had a window into this secret aspect, one of many, of William Desmond Taylor's life. On the evening of April 4th, 1921, the Los Angeles Philharmonic Auditorium held its opening of Verdi's Otello, and among all the other showbiz glitterati making appearances, two men stood together in the lobby of the theater. One was the young 20-something set designer at Famous Players Lasky, George Hopkins. The other was William Desmond Taylor. Hopkins had, in fact, asked Taylor to accompany him to the premiere when his own date, the actress Vivian Martin, canceled due to a bout of the flu. And for whatever reason, maybe he just didn't care about the social dictum requiring he and Hopkins to have women with them as much as he usually did that night, Taylor had said okay. They sat together near the orchestra pit, and apparently George Hopkins could not have been happier with this arrangement. But when the women seated in front of them turned to stare, his heart probably flopped on itself. It was Charlotte Shelby and Mary Miles Minter, the latter of which would later growl at Taylor, quote, so this is what is going on, unquote. The encounter apparently shook Taylor, and he left before the opera was even over, leaving a fuming Hopkins to burn holes in Mary's head with his eyes. It was hard enough to enjoy a relationship he had cultivated with Taylor. Now a simple night out was being ruined by that crazed daddy's girl. It was actually pretty emblematic of the difficulty a relationship like theirs would have during that time. Whatever they did, reality would always have a way of intruding. And after all, Hopkins would remember that his alleged relationship with Taylor was, as William Mann puts it, quote, irregular and indefinite, unquote, which makes sense given the times in which they lived. And it tore him up inside because, like Mary, but not because of weird daddy issues, George Hopkins was indeed in love with William Desmond Taylor, and he was pretty certain that Taylor was in love with him. So, let's hit pause for a second. Where do these claims come from? Unfortunately, they come basically third-hand. During his research at, for uh, Tinseltown, William Mann was able to obtain a copy of George Hopkins's unpublished memoir called Caught in the Act, which Hopkins basically told all regarding his purported relationship with William Desmond Taylor. This can mean everything or nothing. Either they were the ravings of a drunk old queen with his glory days of winning Oscars behind him, he was set designer for some of the great mid-20th century films like Streetcar Named Desire and My Fair Lady, or this guy held off ever publishing them because he didn't want to stir up trouble or bring heat on himself for being a gay man. It's really hard to say. 
King Vidor slash Sidney Kirkpatrick seem to imply the former with repeated allusions to Hopkins refilling his wine glass every five seconds when King Vidor interviewed him, but I'm more inclined to go with the latter explanation if forced to choose. I think it's reasonable to assume that even if Taylor wasn't gay, he and George Hopkins were certainly close. There are many reasons to suggest that Taylor's sexuality wasn't as he presented it to the outside world. Putting aside that being openly gay in the 1920s was basically impossible, unless you were Henry Peavy, I guess, there were other things worth considering. I don't want to get too much more into the armchair psychology than I already have of a man who's been dead for nearly a century, but honestly, that's part of the fun of this. We'll never truly know what William Desmond Taylor's sexual tendencies were, but if we're to combine this unpublished memoir written by George Hopkins with some of the behavior that we witnessed in Taylor's earlier life that we talked about in the last episode, a clearer picture does start to emerge. It can, at least. We talked about the spells of quote-unquote feverish neuralgia that he experienced shortly before abandoning his family in New York, and that he experienced while well, engaged to his second fiance Neva Gerber. Gerber would actually describe these attacks as follows, quote, He would walk the floor and wring his hands, asking, Why do I have to keep up this battle? Is it worthwhile to continue this struggle of existence? With all the odds against me, is the struggle really worth it? Unquote. This doesn't sound like neuralgia, whatever that means. Speaking from personal experience, this sounds more like profound anxiety coupled with bouts of depression. But not only that, Taylor would also make veiled threats of considering suicide, and whenever Gerber questioned him about these bouts... He would vaguely attribute it to his bad health or nerves, even though he exercised every day and, as far as we know, ate quite well. Of course, this proves nothing, but it is worth noting. It's also worth noting that there was no record of him experiencing these bouts of neuralgia later in his life after he began working as a director, especially after he met George Hopkins. I mean, his only health trouble seemed to be related to stomach cramps. And let's put it this way. We have this unpublished memoir from George Hopkins, an employee of Famous Players Lasky, an employee who, despite ostensibly being in love with Taylor, took part in the initial cover-up of information that is likely why this murder will never be officially solved. Remember, he was one of the studio employees who, on the morning after the murder, scrounged around Taylor's bungalow and gave Charles Ayton the material to take back to the studio. Given the times in which he lived, when being gay in public could land you a vagrancy charge, as Henry Peavy received, if you'll recall, or worse, and given the fact that the studio was so quick to try and gain control of the narrative surrounding Taylor's death, it's quite understandable that Hopkins not only played ball on the day after the murder, but that he played ball throughout his whole life, keeping him from ever publishing his memoirs that implicated Taylor in terms of his sexuality. Most importantly... This speculation could provide some insight into at least one of the secrets the studio were keen on keeping about their slain director. But as William J. Mann would have it, the secret of Taylor being a homosexual, or possibly bisexual given his supposed affairs with women as well, wasn't revealed by covert love letters Taylor kept between himself and George Hopkins, though I suppose that's always possible too. Nor was it likely that it was evidence of the rumors that Henry Peavy was retrieving quote-unquote young boys for Taylor, suggested by King Vidor. In the documents confiscated by the studio, the ones that weren't returned to the scene of the crime, and police at least, Mann actually suggests that there was evidence of something far more nefarious tied to Taylor's sexuality and the threat of its exposure. Evidence of blackmail. Now, as we know, 
It couldn't have just been Taylor's real identity as William Dean Tanner and the family he abandoned in New York those 14 years earlier that was being used as blackmail against him. That had quickly been revealed to the press, with everyone from Mary Miles Minter to Mabel Normand expressing their shock upon the revelations of Ethel Daisy's existence uh, appearing in the gossip trades. So in other words, if that aspect of Taylor's mysterious past had been what Taylor was being blackmailed for, why would the studio have bothered to hold onto several of the documents they'd taken from the crime scene? There is no evidence that Taylor had any bastard children from any other affairs, and as far as we know, he never killed anyone. But now, with hindsight, we do know at least one very credible source with every incentive not to reveal Taylor's true sexuality, both at the time and many years later, and that this one very credible source seemed to have it in his head that Taylor was gay, or at least gay for him. That source was, yes, Taylor's supposed lover, George Hopkins. While it wasn't exactly in the open that Taylor and Hopkins were lovers, and remember, we can't confirm this, if it was the case that they were indeed lovers, and if Hopkins' accounts line up, in a world as small as Hollywood was in the 1920s, there is no way that this would stay a complete secret, especially if they were attending premieres and operas together. And even if Hopkins was Taylor's first true long-term same-sex affair, it's pretty likely that he didn't just become gay when he first met the set designer. Depending on how much he trusted or possibly inadvertently revealed to the people with whom he worked and socialized, there very well could have been a good handful of people who held this secret knowledge about Taylor's sexual preferences. And given these logical assumptions, it's almost certain that within the piles and piles of correspondence and scribbles that there was evidence of Taylor's secret sex life. And considering how gleefully the press jumped on the rumors of Taylor visiting queer places, quote-unquote, and considering the extreme stigma of homosexuality in the United States of 1922, it doesn't take much to imagine why the studio had plenty of incentive to hold on to any material that might have implicated Taylor as being a homosexual, especially with evangelical moralists, remember them, breathing down their necks. And that all included efforts of blackmail. But this raises the important question. Who was blackmailing him? In 1964, a young man named Ray Long was visiting his parents at their home in a less ritzy part of the Hollywood Hills. While there, one of their neighbors, a woman named Pat Lewis, suddenly suffered a heart attack, and Ray was present as this old woman writhed around on the ground in pain. Seeming to have accepted what she saw as the inevitable, this Pat Lewis began frantically asking for a priest so she could confess her sins. When Ray's mother, who had become moderately friendly with Mrs. Lewis over the years, tried to calm the older woman down, Mrs. Lewis began to vigorously shake her head, imploring her friend that no, no, she did not understand what she meant. Then she said the words, hoping to explain her desperate need for salvation in the eyes of the Lord. Quote, I killed William Desmond Taylor, unquote. No one in the room knew what that meant, though Ray Long's mom would later recall that once while watching a TV program called Ralph's Stories Los Angeles with Mrs. Lewis that the older woman began freaking out when William Desmond Taylor's name and picture came up on the screen as the host discussed unsolved crimes in Hollywood's short, tumultuous history. Quote, I was the one who killed him, unquote, Mrs. Long would remember her shouting. Mrs. Lewis eventually calmed down, and Mrs. Long hadn't thought anything of it since, but now here Pat Lewis was, claiming that she had killed an obscure silent film-era director that everyone had forgotten. 
Shortly after this outburst, Pat Lewis, this mysterious old woman, was dead. So, who the hell was Pat Lewis? And what the hell did she have to do with William Desmond Taylor? That's the question we're going to be looking at here. Like seemingly every other person in our story, Pat Lewis wasn't always named Pat Lewis. She became Patricia Lewis when she married a man named Lewis, but before that, she'd been Patricia Palmer. And before Patricia Palmer, she had been a one Margaret Gibby Gibson. The first name change occurred in 1920 after Gibby had been caught in a little Tokyo brothel, yet again for quote-unquote research apparently, uh, likely turning tricks for some extra cash. Despite being let off by the flamboyant lawyer Frank Dominguez, her name had been tarnished, essentially, in the industry. She was radioactive. In a sense, being given a star lawyer like Dominguez to keep her out of prison had cost her the reputation she'd been trying to build for the last several years. The reason? Frank Dominguez was on retainer by famous players Lasky, Gibby's primary employer. They wanted the brothel sting that landed her in court to just go away. It was making some rounds in the trades, all while the culture war with the reformers and moralists and church ladies was starting to rage. But that also meant never using the name Margaret Gibson on their marquees ever again. So what's the problem, Gibby probably wondered. Change the name and the age down to 19 while we're at it. The thing to understand about Margaret Gibby Gibson is that in a lot of ways, she's the perfect character to use as a symbol when discussing the history of Hollywood. Not the big timers like Mabel Normand or the successful directors like William Desmond Taylor or even the moguls who started it all like Adolf Zukor. Gibby is more the perfect populist symbol, I guess, for, uh, for the blind hope, the quote-unquote hunger as it's unfortunately and unironically called by actors and social media people today. It's the the hunger, quote-unquote, that keeps the gears of the Hollywood machine greased. That blind faith, really, is what pumps new blood into the studios and what creates new stars. The problem with this is that if everyone had a shot, like we're constantly told that you'll be the next so-and-so, then there would be no such thing as stars. Another thing our friend Adolf Zukor understood when creating them, a sense of scarcity. Margaret Gibby Gibson was one of those people who, despite having good credits and pretty consistent work throughout the 19-teens, would never become a star. If it was going to happen, it would have happened already. Simple as that. This is why you saw, and sometimes still see, actors and actresses living from gig to gig turning to, um, alternative sources of income, I guess we'll call it. But back to Gibby. She'd actually been working in the business as an actress for a while before the Little Tokyo incident made her persona non grata on the famous player's lot. One of her more successful films had actually been a little Vitagraph picture called The Kiss, in which she, the lead, would fall head over heels for a Lothario and, well, kiss him. The man playing the Lothario? A recently arrived William Desmond Taylor. The Kiss is actually one of the only, if not the only, I might be wrong about that, surviving films that starred William Desmond Taylor. You can find it on YouTube, I think it's even on Vimeo and other platforms out there, so you can get a sense of what the guy actually looked like beyond just the old photos, if you're interested. So, Taylor and Gibby, after working together, would continue to see each other and act together in other films as the years would follow, and even become relatively close friends. 
There's no indication that it was anything like Taylor's BFF relationship with Mabel Normand a few years later, but they were definitely on a first-name basis and probably shared more than a few cocktails together. It was the conversations had over these cocktails and possibly witnessed or heard at certain parties they both attended that Gibby likely learned of Taylor's alleged homosexuality. Their friendship wasn't meant to last, though, as often happens in Hollywood when one friend's star begins to ascend and the other remains in place. Taylor became a successful director and started working with the likes of Mary Pickford while Gibby was stuck doing crappy two-real westerns. The thing about status shifts like this occurring between friends who are both trying to find success is that even though it's never personal, it will likely drive a wedge, especially if one of them is as quote-unquote hungry, to use that awful term again, as uh, Margaret Gibby Gibson was. It's unhealthy, but completely rational for someone who works their ass off and sees no benefit to become resentful when those around them who work just as hard or possibly less hard become way more successful. It, it just makes sense. And there are many indications that Gibby was resentful of her successful friend who no longer seemed to have any time for her. This was likely amplified when, after getting no response from all the studios and producers to whom she'd passed her Patricia Palmer headshots, when she left her headshot with her old friend William Desmond Taylor and never heard anything back. Again, none of this was personal. I doubt even Taylor had a say. And given his notoriety for helping out anyone he could, I bet he wanted to help his old friend. But let's be real. Studio execs are hyper-focused on what sells and tend to miss the forest for the trees. But don't let anyone ever tell you that they're stupid. One look at the Patricia Palmer headshots, and they knew exactly who this was. It was that little broad from the little Tokyo scandal, is probably what they thought. Keep her out of here, they probably said. But there's no way Gibby would have known that, and she probably placed the blame of not being heard or given the time of day squarely on Taylor's shoulders, which probably made it easier for her to stomach what she eventually did. See, during this time, Gibby was running with a bad crowd. Remember, she was trying to make ends meet as best she could, and it wasn't all prostitution and other sordid activities for the time. She actually owned property and rented it out to those who could promise to pay. The thing is, most people in Los Angeles around this time were, well, were not good, well-adjusted people. You could maybe make the argument they still aren't. But at this point, they were all desperate people trying to make it in a hyper-indifferent industry. Again, probably not that much different from now. And here's the thing. Desperate people tend to attract bad people. And that's exactly who started living in one of the properties Gibby owned and managed. Specifically, a man named Don Osborne, a six-foot, four-inch failed actor and director, but more importantly, a con man with a predilection for bunko schemes and sleeping with his niece, Rose Putnam. It was only a matter of time before Gibby would become involved in this guy's rackets, i.e. the bunko schemes, not sleeping with his niece. Gross. Anyway, so, so what are bunko schemes? They're not just an old-timey term. Well, they are, but bear with me here. They're an old-timey term for a con game whose name references a con game involving dice, like the kind you see in amazing movies like The Sting or Matchstick Men. Basically, you have a mark or a patsy, usually a rich or at least seemingly rich fella, and you have a confederate, usually a pretty woman, or in this case, the case of Don Osborne, Rose Putnam, his niece-slash-lover. 
The pretty woman walks up to the guy at the hotel bar, where most of these schemes conducted by Don Osborne and his cronies took place, and eventually the pretty woman gets the man, the patsy, to agree to take her up to his room. Feel free to use your imagination, but I'm sorry to say that before it got too dirty, the pretty woman would usually come storming off the elevator, smeared makeup, tears in her eyes, claiming that the desperately apologizing man following her had tried to get fresh with her. As the man following her is pleading, he's suddenly face-to-face with the massive six-foot-four-inch frame of Don Osborne, glaring down at him and demanding what the hell he'd been trying with his wife. As the man struggles to explain, Osborne says he has it in his mind to call the police, maybe even try to get them to invoke the Man Act, which was a really good way at the time to go to jail for having an affair, uh, back in the day at least. This makes the Mark really nervous, if not straight-up terrified, and he begs Osborne not to do anything too hasty. Osborne uses this as his in, quote-unquote, and pounces with an offer. Maybe a certain sum of money, say enough to remind you how serious this is, could guarantee my wife and I keep our mouths shut, that kind of thing. This is why mentioning Osborne's size and why his size was just so important. He was able to intimidate his marks with both the cold logic of blackmail and just sheer physical stature, so they usually coughed up the cash right then and there. With that, Osborne and Putnam would leave the premises a couple of hundred, if not thousand dollars richer if they were lucky. This was their bunco scheme. So, where did Gibby fit into all this? She had been the Confederate before, but mostly she provided something far more important. Names. Because Osborne, as good as he and Rose were at putting the squeeze on traveling businessmen in L.A. hotels, just wasn't really feeling it. These marks were basically small fry, and he knew it. The real money in this town of Los Angeles was in showbiz, in Hollywood, with the actors, directors, producers, and even studio executives. And it so happened that this landlady, an occasional drinking buddy, Margaret Gibby Gibson, had connections in Hollywood. She may not have been big time, and she may have been, you know, having a hard time lately, but she did know some big names. He'd already thrown in the towel like a lot of failed actors and filmmakers do, but because he knew that if he wanted to make it big in L.A., bit parts in movies and handshake deals with producers just weren't going to cut it. As far as Osborne was concerned, the people in the business that had no sympathy for him or his efforts could frankly go fuck themselves and deserve to be ripped off. And those people, with all the cash, all tended to have secrets that they didn't want revealed to the world. All the scandal sheets pretty much provided evidence of that, that they'd been seeing over the last couple of years. And these were secrets that were known, or at least suspected, by Margaret Gibby Gibson, who drew them all up into a tidy list for Osborne to look over. Osborne was probably excited and wanted to jump on these opportunities as soon as possible, but he was clever enough to know that he needed more muscle, someone more hardened than him, to make sure these marks didn't go running to the cops. Even Osborne knew how deferential the LAPD could be to the movie people, so this is where a one Blackie Madsen enters the picture. Blackie Madsen, his real name was Ross Garnet Sheridan, He was 50 years old, much older than the other people that hung around Gibby's properties, but just as much of a quote-unquote locust, as William Mann puts it. No one knew much about his real name, much less his past, but he was definitely a hard case. William Mann describes him as a shortish, about 5'6", barrel-shaped, hot-tempered, unpredictable uh, guy with an itchy trigger finger that was frequently pressed against the old 38 service revolver he'd been carrying with him since serving in the Spanish-American War a few decades earlier. And that itchy trigger finger had already gotten him in trouble. 
back in 1901, specifically when he shot an ex-girlfriend's new lover that had threatened him. The man lived, but Blackie, Ross Sheridan rather, had been given two years in prison. Following this stint, he made his move to the West Coast, first landing in San Diego to stay with his new girlfriend, and then relocating up to L.A. to be with his family when his brother died in 1921. After the funeral, one thing led to another, as it often does in L.A., and he naturally crossed paths with other scumbags, namely Don Osborne and Margaret Gibby Gibson's social circle. And while Blackie would always make Osborne nervous, Osborne saw a very valuable asset in the little guy, hardened reserve. So Don Osborne now has two valuable assets that he thinks will finally give him the cash flow he thinks he deserves. Gibby's list of rich and powerful showbiz patsies and Blackie Madsen's hardened reserve. And within a year of Blackie and Osborne hooking up with Gibby's knowledge in tow, all of a sudden, a famous film director with a lot of secrets he didn't want revealed to the world was lying dead on the floor of his bungalow. You can probably see where I'm going with this. This, of course could be a big coincidence, but so can pretty much every other theory about the Taylor murder. But I want to take a few moments to play with this one, because in some ways, despite it seeming the most outlandish or at least convoluted of the three big ones, I do find it to be the most compelling, like I said earlier. Shortly after Taylor's murder, Gibby, whose opinion on the murder seems limited to her supposed deathbed confession, suddenly seemed to be flush with cash. The likelihood that this came from any acting gigs was laughable at this stage. She was getting bit parts at best, and as William Mann puts it, quote, almost certainly Gibby was sending suckers Osborne and Blackie's way and still getting a cut. How else could she buy the occasional nice dress? Unquote. Add to that, looking at Taylor's finances in the months leading up to his murder, it was discovered that not only was he sending monthly checks to his long-lost daughter, remember Ethel May, back in New York, but there were some pretty significant discrepancies in the income he reported to the IRS and the money he actually had on his books. There was also evidence that he had started making other large payments to recipients unknown. Marjorie Berger, Taylor's accountant, even reported that on the afternoon, the day he was killed, he was carrying a big roll of money, which was a lot more than what was found in his home, the 70-some-odd dollars you might remember. Added to that inconsistency... Taylor had made no deposits at his bank that day, so this begs the question, where did the big roll of money go? The only accounts of Taylor's movements on his final day were his arrival at the studio when he met with Miss Berger, and then when he supposedly went to his tango dancing class before returning home to meet with Mabel Normand. This hardly accounts for every movement of that day. You might be wondering why no one investigated these mysterious payments or missing money, and that's a fair question, but remember... Most of the LAPD was convinced that Taylor's killer was Edward Sands at this point, the guy who'd already started blackmailing him and forging bad checks in his name. Why follow weird leads on mysterious money when you can just say, ah, that's probably just Edward Sands? And then there was Gibby's sudden reappearance on the silver screen in the months that followed her completely blowing through her mysterious money. She was first cast in a Western, a genre she was sick of, but this film called The Cowboy and the Lady was not only a famous player's production in which she'd have a bigger part than she had been usually getting, but it starred the famous, who else, Mary Miles Minter. Apparently, the two women shared hooch on the set and may have even talked about William Desmond Taylor a bit. Apparently, Gibby got approved for the part personally by Jesse Lasky, a.k.a. the head honcho of famous players in California. This seems a little odd, 
if you ask me, especially considering Margaret Gibby Gibson, or Patricia Palmer as everyone now called her, was still technically persona non grata thanks to the Little Tokyo affair. Even odder, though, was that Jesse Lasky cast her in another picture, this time starring Wallace Reed, probably the biggest Hollywood heartthrob at the time, basically the, the 1920s version of peak Leo DiCaprio in the 90s. Eventually, though, this seeming interest in an actress both far older than she claimed and still technically tainted by the Little Tokyo scandal evaporated and Gibby was back to her old bunko schemes. This might have had to do with Wallace Reed actually checking himself into rehab for morphine addiction in late 1922, where he would die in early 1923 from health complications related to the addiction. Apparently, his morphine habit was so bad that he was needing shots every 15 to 20 minutes towards the end. Anyway, this, weirdly in some ways, considering we just got finished spending all this time talking about a murder, but this seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of scandal in Hollywood. Never mind the fact that the Fatty Arbuckle trials were still going on. Just as the press was starting to forget, really, about the unsolved Taylor murder, the biggest star on the planet, Wallace Reed, up and dies of morphine addiction, something he admitted to in a press conference shortly before his death. The studios saw this as the time to basically cut losses and bail on anyone with the slightest scent of controversy. And while Gibby didn't get any more choice parts, though she did get a third bit part in another famous player's picture in 1923, the big favors being done for her by Jesse Lasky were actually far from finished. Because she was back to bunko schemes along with Don Osborne and Blackie Madsen. But while they were busy putting the squeeze on a monumentally wealthy and successful banker up in the Midwest named Bushnell, Gibby was busy giving us here today evidence that she had no problem with cruel blackmail herself. She apparently threatened a man down in Tijuana that unless he coughed up the cash to keep her quiet, she would have the man act thrown at him, which would see him see prison time for transporting an quote-unquote impressionable girl like her across state lines. This was a very popular blackmail scheme back then if it involved a woman, as if you invoked the man act. But thanks to Blackie and Osborne getting greedy with their Bushnell scheme, and since it involved multiple states... All of a sudden, the newfangled FBI took an interest in the goings-on of what they started to call a blackmailing ring in Los Angeles, resulting in Osborne and his niece lover, Rose Putnam, being arrested in a sting. And then the normally unsentimental Blackie Madsen tried to extort another 30 grand out of the Bushnell guy so he could bail his confederates out. This Blackie guy barely considered these people, specifically Osborne, he barely considered him a friend, much less someone worth being loyal to. That is, unless Osborne had something on him. As William Mann puts it, quote, whatever the blackmailers had on him, it must have been a doozy, unquote. The FBI was putting the pieces together through their interrogations of Osborne, as well as conversations with people involved with the blackmailers. This included the anonymous letter they'd gotten a hold of that had been written by one of Osborne's former friends and confederates, a guy named Fred Moore, who spoke of Osborne and Blackie in kind of strangely fearful terms, like they weren't guys to mess with, like he may have known something too. And after putting the pieces together, they realized the common thread with the blackmailers and all their friends and acquaintances was the person who rented out the property in which they had all been living and spending their time. Margaret Gibby Gibson. This is why, on November 2, 1923, Gibby was served with an arrest warrant by LAPD officers and the FBI, who took her in on the spot. Gibby reportedly said to her mother, who was living with her at the time, quote, Mother, these gentlemen are officers. 
I have to go with them, unquote. To which her mother replied, quote, are you going to jail, unquote. Apparently, without any real intonation or emotion, like Aubrey Plaza style, Gibby simply replied, quote, I suppose so, unquote. But it wasn't to be. The feds couldn't pin anything concrete on Gibby directly related to the blackmail ring with Don Osborne, Rose Putnam, and Blackie Madsen at the center. Really, all they had was evidence, this is not a crime, by the way, that she had been putting them up as renters on one of her properties. But she was still being held with a $2,500 bail until her trial could start. And that's about $37,000. That's not chump change, even by today's standards. Until all of a sudden, a mysterious benefactor posted her bail. She was free. But Gibby wasn't out of the woods yet. She still had to face the court. And yet, who suddenly replaced her public defender but a one Frank Dominguez, the same flamboyant lawyer who represented her in court after the Little Tokyo scandal, and the same flamboyant lawyer who was held on retainer by famous players Lasky. Not only did Dominguez, with his trademark flair, get her case dismissed, but he did so easily. He was a Republican, like the prosecutor, a man named Mark L. Heron, who also had vested interests within the film industry, and who, as William Mann puts it, quote, seemed anxious to end the matter as quickly as possible and let Gibby off the hook, unquote. How could this woman, this nobody, pull so much goddamn weight at famous players Lasky? She was giving Charlotte Shelby a run for her money in terms of friends in high places. As William Mann says, quote, What was it about Margaret Gibson that compelled the heads of famous players Lasky to move heaven and earth to keep her safe and presumably silent? Unquote. So we know all this sketchiness about Gibby and her connections and her deathbed confession. Does this mean that she was the one who put a bullet in William Desmond Taylor? Unfortunately, not so much. Or as William Mann puts it, it, quote, stretches the imagination, unquote, especially considering how much effort has been made to debunk the weird woman dressed as a man nonsense. But more importantly, the available evidence seems to suggest that she wasn't even in Los Angeles at the time of the killing. In fact, this is where the fine folks at Taylorology have done the primary source legwork that the rest of us can't be bothered to do. Digging up old press reports from early 1922, they've compiled evidence that shows Gibby was busy shooting a film called Cold Feet on February 1st, 1922, up in Truckee, California. While it's hard to find evidence that she was actually there at the exact moment Taylor was killed, this was where and when location shooting for Cold Feet was happening, and thanks to the script dug up by William Mann in his research... We know that she had at least two scenes filmed on location, and it was most likely during this time. But even if Gibby was in Los Angeles during the Taylor murder, it just doesn't add up with the witness accounts. And even if we're to go back to the woman dresses a man theory, that just doesn't make sense. Gibby was a slight woman who was maybe 100, 110 pounds soaking wet, and no way could she pass her witness Faith McLean's idea of a quote-unquote motion picture burglar. So why confess to killing Taylor? Honestly, it was probably a combination of model and old age and Catholic guilt. She felt responsible. Because, if this theory holds water, how else could Don Osborne and Blackie Madsen learn of Taylor's sexual preferences? How else could Taylor have even landed on their list of potential patsies for their blackmail schemes? 
And perhaps most importantly, how else could FBI Special Agent Leon Bone, uh, the man assigned to the blackmail ring case at the FBI, how else could Special Agent Bone get it in his head that Osborne and co. may have been involved in the Taylor murder? So much so that he actually sent a goddamn memo about this possible connection between the blackmail ring and the murder to the DA's office to look into this possible connection with the murder. The problem, though, requires us to go back to our boy, Detective Sergeant King. And the problem is that he didn't even seem to acknowledge this inquiry at the time or later, since he was so invested in the Mary Miles mentor Charlotte Shelby theory. Add to that a little classism, because King just didn't buy that Osborne and Taylor could have had any connection because they didn't run in the same circles. Taylor was, you know, big shot Hollywood director. Osborne was the two-bit thug and failed actor. So he just didn't see how they could possibly be connected. But looking at what we have, I guess the big reason King never looked into this lead was that he simply forgot or didn't even know about Gibby, despite her name popping up in the papers due to this sting conducted by the FBI. So priorities, I guess. So, here's the theory of who killed William Desmond Taylor as William Mann would have it. The William Mann narrative. William Desmond Taylor, gay but understandably for the time in which he lived, closeted. Margaret Gibby Gibson, through her friendship with Taylor as well as friends of his, learns of this secret of his, among others. Gibby becomes bitter at her stalled career, so she throws Taylor under the bus by putting his name on the list of patsies she's helped create for Blackie Madsen and Don Osborne's quote-unquote bigger fish blackmail schemes. At some point, Osborne and or Blackie both start putting the squeeze on Taylor, start sapping him dry of money. They make threatening calls to his house. They show up and mill around outside. As you might recall from the first episode, one of Taylor's neighbors would report seeing two men, quote, one much smaller than the other, unquote, as she would recall, trying to open Taylor's front door late one night when the director wasn't home. Now, Blackie was short, but not that short. And next to a man as tall as Osborne, six foot four, remember, any medium height guy would look short. Then the night in question comes. Don Osborne doesn't remember exactly how to get to Taylor's house, So he asks a gas station attendant, an attendant who would later remember being asked by a tall man how to get to William Desmond Taylor's house. Meanwhile, a witness walking her dog sees a short, stocky, and suspicious-looking man walking toward the alley behind Taylor's house and notes that he has bowed legs. Because of his bowed legs, he would later be identified as Edward Sands by cops in the press, but as it turns out, guess who else had bowed legs? Blackie Madsen. And I did tell you, that that detail, way back when, I did tell you that detail would matter. So, they reach Taylor's home, with Don Osborne keeping watch in the alley, where he'll be heard by the McLean's maid, while Blackie waits with his gun to ambush Taylor after Mabel Norman leaves, and put the squeeze on him for even more money. Remember, these guys have a tendency to get greedy, as we briefly saw when looking at the Bushnell blackmail case that they would go after later. So Taylor escorts Mabel out to her car, leaving his front door open. Blackie quickly ducks inside, likely crouching within the telephone nook to stay hidden until Taylor has entered his bungalow and shut the door. But when Taylor returns, shuts the door, and is greeted with Blackie Madsen's ugly mug, he doesn't do what Blackie expects, which is to piss his pants and do what he's told. Taylor, who's been getting hounded by these guys, who's been probably getting hounded by the drug dealers pissed at him for cutting them off from one of their best clients, Mabel Norman, and who's been getting hounded by an obsessed, crazed actress with daddy issues who can't take no for an answer, Taylor has had enough. He goes for the nearest weapon, which is the chair sitting next to the wall. He raises it over his head, about to bring it down on Blackie's head. 
Blackie has his gun. He knows how and probably wants to use it, so he does. Taylor goes down. Osborne rushes in, seconds after hearing the shot, likely in a panic. This wasn't part of the plan. It's time to go. So he tries to arrange the room as innocently as he can, moving the chair and carpet, and goes tearing out of there as fast as he can without flat-out sprinting. Blackie remains cool, knowing running will just look bad, especially after a gunshot that was so loud. So he leaves Taylor's bungalow, right in plain sight of Faith McLean, who's come to check on the loud bang. She'll remember Blackie as he actually was. Her, and really anyone's idea, of a motion picture burglar. Short, ugly, and hardened. But she'll also remember the one thing that cements Blackie as a true, cold-hearted son of a bitch. She'll remember the smile that he gives her. Only a while ago was it Olive Thomas going the primrose path to perdition in the hellholes of Paris. Then it was a divorce scandal involving the Fairbankses. Then the nasty mess in San Francisco with Fatty Arbuckle. Now it is the murder of the director, William Desmond Taylor, read an editorial in the weeks after William Desmond Taylor's death. This fearsome scandal would have the effect of cleansing a profession which has recently shown alarming signs of moral decay, read another. These editorials were echoing the sentiments of the reformers and the church ladies who were now clamoring with newfound purpose thanks to the murder of a director that may or may not have had something to do with an affair, a drug deal, or a blackmailer. Though, remember, this blackmailer was in the minds of everybody Edward Sands. But who else would be blackmailed besides someone with something to hide? That was likely their logic. But the moralists and editorialists didn't care about the multitudes of praise heaped on William Desmond Taylor after his death, including a legit crying Fatty Arbuckle calling Taylor, quote, the best fellow on the lot, unquote, or Mabel Norman's friend Edna Purviant saying she had, quote, heard him spoken of as a man with a reputation above reproach and a nature that was kind and generous, unquote, or Taylor's ex, his ex-fiancée, Neva Gerber, saying that she had, quote, never known a finer man than Mr. Taylor, unquote. They didn't care when his funeral was attended by thousands, with many tears shed by nearly all in the audience. And when it came down to it, nor did the moralists or editorialists care, and would never care, about which theory we've covered in the past however long it's been about the murder of William Desmond Taylor. They didn't care which one was true, and why would they? These theories, and really any of the others, were all equally true in the eyes of the reformers and the church ladies, because they all prove the same thing. That Hollywood was morally corrupted beyond repair, and that something needed to be done, as it always had. After all, Fatty Arbuckle's third trial had concluded, and the jury foreman had made a statement that had gone the 1922 equivalent of going viral, that, quote, a great injustice has been done him, unquote, 
driving both demand for Arbuckle's pictures and the hackles of the moralists and church ladies up into a huge frenzy all over again. As far as our friend Adolf Zukor was concerned, all of this occurring at once, you know, beginning with all the earlier scandals we covered in the last episode, culminating in the Fatty Arbuckle scandal, then having this with William Desmond Taylor's murder added on top of it, it couldn't have been worse timing. In case you've forgotten, the man with whom we began our story with all those hours ago, Adolf Zukor was the man looming over this whole thing, whether people were aware of it or not. And it's funny how involved Zukor was in this whole thing, when you think about it, because he had his fingers in about just as many pies as you can imagine. If William Desmond Taylor and his murder was on the micro scale, Zukor and his concerns were definitely the macro. After all, he was facing down not just the moralists, the moralists who he'd hired Taylor to keep at bay, remember, but the power of the Federal Trade Commission and, by extension, the halls of power in Washington. He was facing those, too. But in wrapping this epic tale of ours into a neat little bow, it's important for us to explain how it's all connected. It begins with the FTC investigating famous players Lasky for the business practice we discussed briefly in the first episode of block booking and what one of Zucor's opponents in Washington referred to as, quote, the trustification of the industry, unquote. To put it in a nutshell, Adolf Zucor was trying to create a monopoly for himself by controlling both the production and distribution of his pictures through his scheme of vertical integration and then using block booking to basically squash any competition. And as we know, the FTC isn't really a big fan of monopolies, and for good reason. And this is why, in 1921, in their biggest case, they charged famous players Lasky with violating antitrust laws. So Zukor was facing political pressure from Washington, as well as the cultural pressure from the moralist church ladies, and increasingly, thanks to the scandal after scandal after scandal that was happening in Hollywood, the editorials in newspapers across the entire country. While famous players Lasky did eventually lose the suit with the FTC in 1927 and be barred from the practice of block booking along with everyone else, there were literally thousands of pages of documents to review. So in the meantime, it was all a PR battle. Like I said, now both culturally and politically. So facing this cultural and political battle ahead of him, Zukor acted in... Well, in, in ways that are both genius and morally questionable at times, because he did hire a very useful man in the form of Will Hayes, who would come to essentially create the notion of self-governance, of morals at least, of suitability for viewership within Hollywood that would then turn into the MPAA decades later. But when he did that and when he formed alliances, he was mostly doing it and doing things like that so he wouldn't have to get his hands dirty or at least any dirtier than they already were. But the problem is that the William Desmond Taylor murder and the fallout that it produced was just too much for Zukor to trust in the hands of anyone else, much less his business partners back in Hollywood. So in the weeks that followed Taylor's murder, Zukor hopped on a transcontinental train to Los Angeles, making sure to tell the gathering of reporters that, quote, there is no more immorality in the Hollywood colony than on the New York Stock Exchange, unquote as well as adding to the Variety Reporter that it was, quote, clean up time in Hollywood, unquote. And he would make sure to tell the reporters that he met on the L.A. train platform the following, quote, 
We all deplore the recent unfortunate occurrences, but I am sure that the percentage of wholesome, God-fearing men and women must be as large in the studios as among those following any other line of endeavor." Unquote. After giving these statements to the gathered reporters and their snapping flashbulbs, Adolf Zukor made a beeline for the famous player's Lasky studio on Sunset Boulevard, where he would meet both his partner Jesse Lasky and Charles Aiton, sealing themselves within the office with all of the correspondence and documents procured by Aiton at the Taylor bungalow on the morning after the murder. As William Mann puts it, quote, The steps that Zukor and Lasky took in response to Taylor's death would be completely erased from history. If anything was written down, it was subsequently destroyed. They left no trail. Decades later, when Zukor's papers were prepared for posterity, there would be one notable gap in his correspondence. Every month for the year 1922 would be packed full of letters, telegrams, and memos, except for February, for which not one scrap would remain. Unquote. So the question is, what were those steps? that Adolf Zukor and Jesse Lasky took. In an interesting crossover of our secondary sources, King Vidor, remember him, wrote in a letter that he had written to Robert Giraud in 1968, in which he said, quote, Last year I interviewed a Los Angeles police detective, now retired, who had been assigned to the Taylor case immediately after the murder. He told me, We were doing all right then, before a week was out, we got the word to lay off, unquote. This seems to be the first instance in which it became clear, at least to some of the parties involved, that there were forces trying to keep the Taylor case from being solved. Add the pressure to lay off, quote-unquote, along with the obstruction of justice committed by Charles Ayton in the taking and replacing of documents from Taylor's home on the morning after the murder, it shouldn't be shocking that there were forces trying to make this story go away from within the studio— this was likely one of the steps taken by Lasky and Zukor, who made sure to send multiple cables to the LAPD unequivocally pinning the murder on Edward Sands, since it was the least damaging of all the theories floating around about who killed Taylor, at least as they saw it. Interestingly, though, they also allowed the drug pusher revenge story to be floated through the press, since despite their yellow hue, the press seemed to love this noble director fighting drug trafficking slain for his trouble angle, which only served to make Taylor, and thus the studio, look good, or at least not terrible. In fact, as you might recall from earlier in the episode when we were talking about the Robert Giraud theory, I mentioned Taylor's old friend, the explorer and documentarian Captain E.A. Salisbury, saying that the drug peddlers got to Taylor first, quote-unquote. Now, this is most definitely circumstantial evidence that borders on conspiracy theory, but it's worth mentioning. Captain Salisbury had just returned from a voyage in which he had shot his most recent documentary, a documentary with which he'd been having trouble finding distribution. He makes the statement about Taylor being the anti-drug crusader, sacrificing himself, and all of a sudden, famous player's Lasky swoops in and finds a release window for Salisbury's film. Coincidence? Maybe. We'll leave it at that. Clearly, the studio was protecting someone within those piles of documents they'd taken from the crime scene. Zukor knew scandal when he saw it. Detective King who knew full well that the studio was making life difficult for his investigation, thought it was Mary who was being protected, though given the release of her letter shortly thereafter, I think we can maybe rule that out. Mabel Normand? Again, not likely for the exact same reason. Aiton returned her letters to the crime scene and put them in Taylor's boot. Perhaps Taylor himself and George Hopkins, evidence of their alleged relationship? It's certainly possible. Or 
and this is as William Mann would have it, perhaps there was evidence of not just Margaret Gibby Gibson's connection to Taylor, but also her connection to the blackmail efforts being made against him by her cronies Don Osborne and Blackie Madsen. And since Zucor and Lasky didn't want to be stuck with bad publicity of an ex-prostitute like Gibby and her blackmailing gang being connected to the murder of their boy Taylor, especially after she was getting arrested for her schemes, this was when Lasky gave her a contract to ensure her silence and then, a few years later, would give her the lawyer she needed to stay out of prison and thus less likely to spill the beans on the whole Taylor affair and its subsequent cover-up. Here's the thing, friends. Regardless of which of these theories is true, the studio had an incentive in each one to cover it up, all for PR. If it was Charlotte Shelby, the jealous mother of one of their employees killing another one of their employees, it would be a really bad look. If it was drug dealers connected to Mabel Normand and other employees, it would align with the reformers' view of Hollywood being a drug-infested den of sin and also be a really bad look, despite Taylor's anti-drug crusader image being thrown around in the press. And if it had been a blackmail scheme involving both the director allegedly being a homosexual and involving an actress who had been busted as a prostitute in Little Tokyo only a year before, then again, it's a really bad look. Regardless of how true the William Mann, Robert Giraud, or King Vidor theories are or are not, we do know one thing for certain. Famous Players Lasky employees tampered with evidence from an active crime scene, selectively returned some of it while locking the rest of it away in the studio vault, put pressure on the various corners of Hollywood, the press, and the authorities where they needed to, and engaged in the greatest cover-up known in Hollywood history. So, how do we end this story? What happened to everyone else, or at least all of our major players? As we covered earlier, Mabel was continually raked over the coals by the press thanks to the Taylor scandal and her involvement with other scandals during the 1920s, like the Dine shooting, until she died at the age of 37 in 1930 of tuberculosis, either racked with guilt over her possible connection to, the, to her best friend's murder, or simply with grief because he really was the only man who truly cared for and understood her. As we saw from the beginning of the man theory, Margaret Gibby Gibson eventually died, alone and basically penniless and filled with some sort of guilt or regret. Whether or not this guilt or regret was due to her alleged part in the murder of her old friend and colleague, William Desmond Taylor, we will never truly know. Before that, she apparently maintained her silence without any knowledge she might have had about the death of William Desmond Taylor, possibly thinking that if she did, she'd keep getting those olive branches offered to her by Jesse Lasky. This was likely her hope, seeing as she never gave up her dream of acting, continuing to submit headshots and do bit parts and walk-on gigs for decades after the whole thing. Blackie Madsen and Don Osborne both saw the inside of a prison for various reasons. While Osborne was already in prison back in the Midwest for his part in the blackmail scheme against the rich banker Bushnell, Blackie Madsen was on the run. When he returned to Los Angeles in 1924 to see his ailing mother, he was nabbed by the FBI. In his possession, and again, this is technically only circumstantial evidence, they found his old 38 service revolver, which, as it happened, was the exact same kind of gun that killed William Desmond Taylor. After getting arrested, Blackie waived his L.A. hearing because he knew that he'd only go down for the Bushnell scheme in Ohio, which would give him two years tops. 
William Mann suggests that Blackie Manson may have known that he'd get pinned with far, far more serious things in L.A., but as usual, that's just speculation. Very reasonable speculation, but just speculation. Blackie Madsen ended up getting sentenced to three years and a day after which he was released. He apparently roamed around the Pacific Northwest and then moved down to Mexico before he was either shot or stabbed and eventually found his way back to L.A., where he died in the hospital after returning at the age of 67. Detective King would doggedly continue down the path of the find the woman theory for a few years after the case wrapped, never stopping to consider other possibilities. His determination was what made him such a good cop, but also one with a horrible blind spot. He had never truly given up the idea that Charlotte Shelby, the mother of Mary Miles Minter, had had something to do with the murder of William Desmond Taylor. Charlotte Shelby, for her part, would be vindicated by the law, as you might recall from me talking about her alibi earlier on in our story, but she was never vindicated by the press. And in 1957, in Santa Monica, while living with the daughter she had used as her personal piggy bank and gateway to fame for all those years, she died. And despite the reconciliation, Mary Miles Minter would free herself from her mother's dominance and from Hollywood itself almost as soon as Famous Players Lasky announced it wouldn't be renewing her contract after the Taylor scandal hit. That was just their way of throwing her under the bus along with everyone else during the time where they decided to clean house after the Wallace Reed scandal hit the press. Mary would remain full of bitterness and trauma. The trauma was less from what happened to William Desmond Taylor and more from the exploitation she'd endured under her mother and the industry that had basically just ground her up and spat her out like so many actresses before and since. She and her mother had several fights over the years that followed Taylor's murder, mostly legal battles regarding the money Mary was owed and that Mrs. Shelby was basically just sitting on. And where Mrs. Shelby's alibi for the night of Taylor's murder was finally known, like I mentioned before. While there were moments of reconciliation, you can tell from Mary's account of her time in the spotlight that the worst thing that happened to her was becoming a star. She once said in an interview, quote, They never would let me be a girl, to do the things that other girls do. I never had the chance to play tag or hide and go seek or have a kitty car. I was always petted and pampered, tutored and touted, made to believe I was something I was not, do things I did not want to do, say things I did not mean. From morning to night, I had money, 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 talked and preached to me." Unquote. I did say Mabel was the most tragic character of our story earlier, and in a lot of ways she is, but going through these quotes and this information about Mary Miles Minter again, I might have to revise that and say she is in some ways one of the saddest characters I've ever encountered in one of these stories. Anyway, Mary would occasionally show up in the press, usually for hosting and being involved in wild parties back in New York. Her weight ballooned almost as quickly as her career died, now that she was free of being placed on what Broadway producer Leonard Sillman called her mother's starvation diet, quote-unquote. She traveled around a bit, living in places like Paris for a while, until she relocated eventually back to Los Angeles and would be visited in her Santa Monica home by King Vidor during his investigation of the Taylor murder in the late 1960s. And he would, I mean, like I said, she is in some ways maybe the actual more tragic character of this story because he would recall a sad, easily distracted, aloof, and clearly deeply damaged older woman. 
When the subject of Taylor came up, Vidor would recall that Mary would immediately burst into tears and be almost inconsolable. Remember, we do have to take King Vidor's account with a grain of salt, but I'm willing to bet something like that was probably true, just based on all the things Mary went through. Mary eventually died in 1984 at the age of 82, making her the last surviving character of our story, though probably in some ways the least reliable, if we're being honest. William Desmond Taylor, like I mentioned earlier, had a huge funeral, complete with military honors thanks to his service in the Great War. He's currently buried in Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and if, if I can find the exact location of his grave, I think I might actually pay it a visit. I feel weird saying this, but I feel like I owe it to him, if only because he provided the basis for one of the wildest stories I've ever encountered. And what about the big kahuna of our story, the big cheese, the giant ambition trapped in the tiny Hungarian body, Adolf Zukor? He would continue to work in Hollywood to one capacity or another and managed to live to the ripe old age of 103, outliving all of his competitors with whom he had started Hollywood. He was constantly given awards, honors, and recognition by his peers. Each succeeding generation, whether they were aware of it or not, was indebted to him, and not just for creating the system in which they and their stars were able to flourish. If they only knew the ground he laid when it came to damage control. Whether it was Roman Polanski receiving the Best Director Oscar for The Pianist in 2003, or every time Harvey Weinstein renewed his contract, sexual harassment allegation clause and all, they likely would have paid tribute to the man who set the precedent of Hollywood protecting their own all those years ago. Looking at this epic tale in the macro... I think it's hard to escape the notion that the revelations we've come to see about Harvey Weinstein and many other Hollywood power players, like the murder of William Desmond Taylor and its subsequent cover-up, are and were not the diseases themselves. They were symptoms of something far greater, a true malady where the scandal brought about by a heinous crime is somehow seen as worse than the crime itself. One could even sympathize with the notion that the scandals of old Hollywood placed a curse on this town that was never lifted. Is it possible, as impossible as it might seem, that in the end, the moralists, as in the reformers, church ladies, Adolf Zukor's greatest enemies, that they were right all along? After all is said and done, it starts to seem like that. Their diagnosis might have been right on the money. Exploitation of desperate individuals willing to do essentially anything to be seen on screens everywhere. Cases of blackmail, addictive drugs, prostitution, rampant corruption that spread into government itself, and the obstruction of justice involving a murder that can never be officially solved. And considering how few power players in Hollywood who have been caught, outed, or even just accused of doing terrible things have seen any actual justice ever being done usually due to justified fears that it could spell the end of the accuser's careers, it's hardly surprising that, and even understandable that gossip, witch hunts, and cancel culture still rule the day, whether it's an angry Christian fundamentalist ripping a fatty Arbuckle picture out of the projector, or an angry Twitter feminist demanding that screenwriter Max Landis never works again. And when looking at the parallel after parallel that we have of the responses to scandal in the film industry that I've been hammering into your guys' heads for, what, at this point, five hours? 
it becomes increasingly hard to ignore the fact that even the cold-blooded murder of a filmmaker loved by his peers wasn't enough to shake the foundations of the industry in any meaningful way and force upon its leaders any meaningful self-reflection. So while the censorious prescriptions offered by reformers driven by a sanctimonious moral imperative are very hard, if not outright impossible, to defend ethically, the diagnosis still does indeed feel eerily accurate, no matter how you spin it, that Hollywood is a morally broken, rogue state. The only real question remains, can something that broken to its core ever be repaired? In his 1953 memoir, The Public is Never Wrong, Adolf Zukor barely dedicated two pages to the Taylor murder. There seems to be an almost calculated game of verbal ping-pong going on during the account he gives of the whole scandal. He throws out all the possible theories and rumors that were circulating at the time, almost as if he had read the newspapers covering the incident like he read the newspapers every day in his office, including the theory that it was dope pushers seeking revenge on Taylor the notion that Edward Sands was somehow Taylor's long-lost brother, that Taylor and Mary Miles Minter had been secretly engaged, that Mabel Norman's name being dragged through the press, and of course not missing a chance to highlight the revelations of Taylor's true identity as William Dean Tanner. And yet, despite his seeming distant, even bordering on dismissive tone regarding the whole affair— Zukor couldn't seem to help but let his true feelings, his frustration, exasperation, annoyance, slip through into his account, especially when describing Mary Miles Minter arriving at the scene of the murder. Quote, the murder of any screen director would have brought enough bad publicity. After learning of the tragedy, Mary had rushed to Taylor's home and made a hysterical scene. Headlines and more headlines. Unquote. And to add what must have felt like the perfect cherry on top of the whole narrative, while Zukor both dismissed the case as unsolved, he didn't miss a beat to bathe the newborn babe that was Hollywood in the 1920s in the sympathetic spotlight of victimhood at the hands of the venal press. Quote, Whatever the true facts, they have never been brought to light. As mysteries go, the Taylor case was good reading, and newspapers sent dozens of special correspondents who described Hollywood as a wicked, wicked city. Unquote. True facts never brought to light indeed. I hate to say it, especially after we've come so far and learned so much together about this case, but honestly, none of this speculation that I've been engaging in or that any writer or podcast or anybody engages in really matters. We know certain facts, and I've laid them out as best I could. And all the inferences I've added are either from other sources or simply ones that I think are reasonable given the evidence that we do have. The unfortunate reality about this story, though, is this. The full picture only stays in place because of circumstantial evidence. Whether you choose to believe the narrative about Mrs. Shelby dressing up in bulky clothes and shooting Taylor with her old thirty-eight as soon as she saw Mary descend the stairs from Taylor's bedroom or the narrative that Mabel Norman's drug habit had more baggage than Taylor was able to deal with, leading him to piss off the wrong people, or the narrative about a blackmail ring finally picking a fight with the wrong man, leading to one of the blackmailers plugging Taylor as he resisted. No matter which narrative you believe, it all hinges on circumstance. Even all of the facts lined up about the studio's actions, about Adolf Zukor and Jesse Lasky's actions— 
we still don't specifically know why they did what they did. We do know that they did what they did, like I've been saying, but we don't know why, and we never will. They made damn sure of that. I referenced one of my favorite films of all time in the previous episode, David Fincher's Zodiac. There really are a lot of parallels, not just with the story of the Zodiac killer and that we still don't know who he was, but also that when you obsess over a story like this, you're going to be disappointed in the outcome and have to take solace in the process of searching for the most elusive thing on planet Earth, the truth. In the end, we will never know, never actually know, who killed William Desmond Taylor, or more importantly, why. We have all these guesses, and they are varying levels of reasonable and likely. But anyway, there's a scene right near the end of Zodiac, and yes, I'm sort of spoiling a 12-year-old film, in which Jake Gyllenhaal excitedly lays out all the facts that support his notion of who the Zodiac is. His foil in this scene, Mark Ruffalo playing famed super cop David Toskey, who was the inspiration for Bullet and Dirty Harry, fun fact there, Mark Ruffalo, David Toskey, calmly but firmly reminds him that all of this compelling evidence is purely circumstantial. It will not serve a conviction because the claim can't be proven. And in some ways, in the best acting of his career, Gyllenhaal replies with a small smile and says, just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it isn't true. Midnight were the stars and you Midnight and a rendezvous Your eyes held a message tender Saying I surrender all my love to you Sweet romance I know all my whole life through I'll be remembering you whatever else I 